I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. It feels like forever since we were here. Uh, And I have someone sitting next to me on my sofa, which is a very bizarre feeling. Beth, how are you? I'm good, Alex. How are you? You better be, because I just made you dinner. Yes, it was a very nice dinner. And now she's drinking my wine. So if she's going to complain, I'm going to slap her. And I can, because she's here. (laughs) This is novelty. Uh, Who else have we got? Lockie is in the house. Hello, Lockie. How's rugby? How's tours? Yeah, rugby's all right. We've got our second to last. No, is it? Yeah, it's going to be our second to last game of the season tomorrow. So I'm not on it, on it. Um, but I have a couple of beers. Um, it's against a team that's already beaten us this year, so we need to sort them out. And um, yeah, apart from that, just looking forward to tour going to Magaluf at the end of the month. Our first rugby tour. It can only go well. Um, that's going to be else? all about the rugby, isn't it? Hundred percent. We well, we won our last uh, tournament that we competed in, the beach uh, rugby tournament, Lanzarote. So um, we need to go to uh, Mallorca and and win there as well. I think we're, we're current reigning European champions, is what that means. Excellent. We've also got Clive. Hello, Clive. Hello, Alex. It's been lovely to see you again. It's been so long. I know. Clive is desperately trying to make his children move out, aren't you? <laughs> Well, it you know, comes a time when they both get into their thirties. It's about time that you. Let but you them bought go. them a flat. You're decorating the flat, and they've still not gone. No, because there are a few more things to be done to the flat. It's a cruel old life. Is that but, the where you pay for all their new furniture? That's a matter of debate at the moment. <laughs> I am having some fun because I'm halfway through listening to the audio book of Racing Green by our very own Dr. Kit Chapman. Now, I can tell you, I have absolutely zero interest in motorsports. I haven't thought about science since I did my O-levels when I was 15 in 1973. But I am absolutely captivated by the book. It's very well read by someone who's got brilliant enunciation, although he doesn't quite inject the type of passion one would imagine Kit would put into it. But my goodness me, it's an enthralling and a great book. I would recommend it to everyone. I love that you have become Kit's number one cheerleader in the last few weeks. It's amazing. Uh, Who else have we got? We've got Sam and she has um, a friend with her today. uh, And that is her fringe, which warrants an identity all of its own now, doesn't it, Sam? Hey, yes, this monstrosity of a fringe, which, as I keep describing it as, is a a 12-year-old's old old cut from the 1990s. 
And you did it for Colin Firth. Oh, technically, yeah, but I signed an NDA, <laughs> so I shouldn't really talk about it. Yeah, I did it. I did it to be a film extra, and I regret it. It's not worth it. Even Colin Firth is not worth the monstrosity on my face. Anyway, Dr. Zach White, because you actually got the PhD over the line. Woo! Yeah. It took bloody long enough, didn't it? But yeah. now, now I haven't got anything to whine about. I so, know. I mean, what am I going to do when I want to complain to you guys? We have to find something else to talk about now. Uh, we'll think of something. We always do. Uh, I, can, I can think of a few things already. Uh, who else have we got with us? Kit, we've heard from you a little bit. Best-selling author, Dr. Kit Chapman. Hello, how's it going? Um, thank you for having me. Um, and thank you, Clive, for that wonderful uh, sort of big up in the book. And thank you to Dr. Zach for joining me in the Doctor Club. This is brilliant. Clive pointed out that they're everywhere now, but that how long we, do we still have to wait for a phone appointment with this many doctors in the room? Yeah, it, we, we, we've got you covered from K to Z. <laughs> I mean, Clive did ask me to take a look at his dodgy knee, but I said that we'd have to wait until uh, Beth's knees came out before we could kind of sink to that level of decorum. <laughs> at least it was only his knee he was asking you to have a look at. You should hear what Lockie was asking me about. <laughs> <laughs> was that also thumb related? Uh, it's a lot smaller <laughs> oh god it's all going downhill already charlie charlie make us classy again how you doing i can't help you i'm afraid no. <laughs> yes I am just as smutty as everybody just as smutty as everyone but no i'm well and good good just uh yeah i have nothing interesting to report oh i spent uh, yeah, all- you do. you're back yeah. on the road i've seen the I'm, schedule yeah i'm back on the road i am back on the- that feels like a long way away because i'm kind of blocking it out that it's in fact not a long way away uh i hit the road over the mayday bank holiday weekend so i'm gonna be in brighton first then bristol uh london i'm going to be in cheshire i'm going up to edinburgh and glasgow norwich exeter so come find me come get cake um if you say that you listen to history hack i will give you extra cake i can't say fairer than that no it sounds like a good deal to me uh who else have we got oh so we also we have heather and heather's doing her best impression of uh homer simpson's sister-in-laws today patty and selma hello Hello. <laughs> <laughs> it's exactly what you sound like. Yes, I, I do totally sound like them. <clears throat> what is wrong? Allergies. And they've given you a massive steroid booster, haven't they? Yes, they have. I'm just going to turn around at one point and you'll be bench pressing your cat. It's like, woo! <laughs> or the couch. Yeah, apparently you sounded even worse yesterday. Yeah. It was more like very white yesterday. I can't wait for you to do your whole pitch in the style of Patty and Selma. It's going to be awesome. Right. Okay. We have got as well two judges. Oh, no, we have Kate. Sorry, Kate. It's because Kate has replaced herself with one of the finest musicians in history. Uh, He's fine, is isn't he? He's is so fine. He is indeed. How, how's Gibraltar? Um. Yeah. Okay. Um. Wet. Well, not today. Sunny today, but wet. Um, and otherwise boring, actually, just busy working. Boo. Yeah. And no feeling in your feet. No, uh, yeah, and numb toes. Yeah, it's beautiful. So if anyone knows a way to regrow toenails more quickly, um, please let me know. 
Excellent. Right. We have two judges with us today. One of them is being a complete drama queen. He's logged in and out about 12 times already. Mr. Joshua Levine. Hello. How are you? Uh, yeah, no, I'm all right. First time back since Christmas. Yeah, it's, it's a bit fake because I was I here for your, your night, Christmas so. film special. <laughs> well, I know. I've, I've seen you, you twice a day. Also quite exciting about, I mean, God knows about music. How can I possibly, you know, judge? Could be anything. Could be Anthrax, could be Beethoven. How can you judge things against each other? Well, what would I like? We shall find out. One person who I don't think will care much about hurting people's feelings when he does decide to judge is Holmes. You all right, Holmes? I'm, I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, I'm not too bad. Um, I'm, I'm not drinking at the moment. Unlike Lockie, I'm playing two two games of hockey tomorrow, not just the one, and I'm probably twice his age almost as well. So I'm saving myself a little bit, but I might I might open something later on. Right, in case you hadn't realised, we are debating today the, the best musician in history. Uh, which I feel is going to cause arguments left, right and centre. And that's precisely why Zach thought of it, I think, um, because he's uh, a shit stirrer of epic magnitude, aren't you? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> we, we love to stir this shit. I decided to be nice this time. I haven't gone after anybody's pitch, um, which is an unusual thing for me. So, you know, I'm not going to shit on anybody else's before uh, they get the chance to make their pitch. So I've oh. actually been quite nice and unshit stirry by my standards. I'm quite thinking of grabbing Beth's laptop and just doing her pitch <gasps> when she goes for a pee or something. No. <laughs> I wouldn't because I'd have to sell my soul because I don't agree with her pitch. Right, where should we go first? Clive, you want to go first so that the, the anxiety is over with, don't you? Absolutely. Just get it out of the way quickly. It's often been noted that people who go later on win. And so I might as well just get rid of the problem and go first. <laughs> there are a couple of things about this subject that I need to sort out before I continue, however. A couple of things that have had me musing. Since I discovered that the topic was the greatest musician rather than the greatest magician, obviously that's Tommy Cooper, the first question that arose was, what is the definition of a musician? Was it someone who plays an instrument or could, could a singer be included? What about someone who didn't actually play or sing a note, but waved a baton to bring cohesion to an orchestra? Or, and this is pertinent, someone whose contribution to music was to scratch notations on paper, a composer? This question I've answered in the broadest possible manner, and so everyone from Ringo Starr to Mantovani gets a look in. The second question is possibly more profound. The choice of the greatest musician is necessarily subjective. It is totally subjective. And so if I was just interested in the win, I'd go for John Williams and the Star Wars theme. That is, if Wikipedia confirmed to me that John Williams did indeed compose the Star Wars theme, but I'm too lazy to go there to check. Or did he do Jaws or Close Encounters or all three? It matters not. The subjective approach would be to appeal to the judges and go with the Star Wars composer. I'm not going to do that. We'll have to content myself with an also-ran position. But the question is a real one. Is Bowie better than Hendrix? Is Mark Boland better than Beethoven? And the answer is clearly that it depends. And it depends on the listener. It's totally subjective. If I was to follow that path, I would advocate the music of Lou Reed and John Cale when they were together in the Velvet Underground. But while their music stirs my soul in a way that no other music could ever do, I appreciate that it leaves others cold. So looking instead for a more objective criteria, 
I considered not merely how much I appreciate the musical strengths of the individual, but also the influence that this particular musician has had. It's for this reason I've chosen Dmitry Shostakovich, and I've chosen him particularly for his seventh symphony, the Leningrad, the impact that that piece of music had when it was composed, and the impact that it continues to have to this day. I should first say that I really like Shostakovich's music. I listen to it frequently, and in particular the seventh, I like it as background music when I'm working, especially when dealing with complex issues. I think this is because the complexity of the music helps my mind focus and decipher those complex issues. But anyway, we don't know much about orchestral music, but I know what I like, and I like Shostakovich. Shostakovich came from a family whose origins were in Poland. Hello, Elena. His grandfather had been exiled there, uh, from there to Siberia by a czar in the 1860s and stayed there when his exile was over. Shostakovich's father moved to St. Petersburg, where Dmitri was born in 1903. In 1919, he was accepted to the Petrograd Conservatory, where he studied piano and composition. He turned out to be a better composer than pianist, by the turn of the 1930s was being noticed. Being noticed was always a good thing in Stalinist times. In January 1936, Uncle Joe attended a performance of Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of the Malensk District. An anonymous review appeared in Pravda shortly afterwards, damning it for anti-Soviet sensibilities. It was believed that the review was written by Stalin himself. The review was captioned, muddle, not music, and described the work as deliberately dissonant, muddled stream of sounds that quacks, oats and pants and gasps. Dmitri was a marked man. Immediately denunciations gathered pace. Those who had praised his work suddenly admitted they had failed to detect the shortcomings of Lady Macbeth, as pointed out by Pravda. Amidst the purges of the late 1930s, Shostakovich was called into the Lubyanka. He arrived trepidations for his appointment on a Monday morning, only to discover that his would-be inquisitor had been purged, that is, tortured, interrogated, and then shot, over the weekend. He waited a while. No one showed, and so he went home. The incident has been memorialised in a novel by Julian Barnes, The Noise of Time. After withholding his fourth symphony, he was rehabilitated in time for his fifth, the outbreak of the Second World War. He was once again in favour. He was in Leningrad when the siege started and commissioned to write his most important work, his Seventh Symphony, the Leningrad. While writing it, he was saved from the horror of the siege and evacuated by air so that he could complete it. Once it was written, after the Bolshoi Orchestra performed its premiere in March 1942 in Moscow, the scores had flown back into Leningrad and an orchestra assembled from the defenders of the city and those who sheltered in its basements. It was a very makeshift ensemble. The core of the orchestra was the Leningrad Radio Orchestra, although many of its members were missing through death and other inconveniences. Musicians were drafted in. Many were not orchestral musicians, some were not professionals. They rehearsed in breaks from the bombardment and from defending their city. Many were starving. The first rehearsal in March, cold, was intended to be three hours long, but had to be called off after 15 minutes as the musicians were too weak to play. They were given extra rations. Eventually, in August 1942, they were ready. Not many people could attend the actual performance, and so loudspeakers were wired up around the city. 
a city in which the frivolity of music had been banned by the authorities. The music played to an entire city and to those surrounding it. A fairy tale ending would suggest that the siege was lifted the very next day. It wasn't. It continued for another year and a half. Many of those who heard that performance, either in person or over loudspeakers, perished. But the performances credited were giving them the morale to keep going, and sapping the morale of the attackers. The performance has been described as a legendary moment in Soviet political and military history, and an event of legendary import all by itself. The music and its story spread around the world. The score was spirited to Tehran in microfilm and then on to New York and London and elsewhere in the free world. It became a symbol of defiance to the Nazis. It helped unite the world in a common cause. The music did not win the war, but more than any other composition, even that V for Victory clip from Beethoven's Fifth, da 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 da, it played a part of it played a part, an important part. The music itself is rousing and threatening and ultimately victorious. From its invasion theme to its imagined and hopeful victory, it takes the listener through the elements of the siege. Seriously, while it is clearly an anti-Nazi work, its origins are thought to be more generally anti-totalitarian, and it may have begun life in Shostakovich's mind as an anti-Stalin piece. Shostakovich's friend, music critic Lev Lebedensky wrote, the famous theme from the first movement Shostakovich had first as the Stalin theme, which close friends the composer knew. Right after the war started, the composer called it the anti-Hitler theme. Later, Shostakovich referred to that German theme as the theme of evil, which was absolutely true, since the theme was just as much anti-Hitler as it was anti-Stalin, even though the world music community fixed only on the first of the two definitions. One who knew Shostakovich and heard him play the police on the, police on the piano said, and then Shostakovich said meditatively, of course it's about fascism, but music, real music, is never literally tied to a theme. Fascism is not simply national socialism, and this is music about terror, slavery, and oppression of the spirit. Later, when Shostakovich got used to me and came to trust me, he said openly that the 7th and 5th, as well, was not only about fascism, but about our country, and generally about all tyranny and totalitarianism. And this is why the music lives on and retains its importance today, here and now, in the present. While written for Leningrad, it applies to Kiev and to other cities under siege from Russian totalitarianism today. Shostakovich lived on until 1975. He was again denounced in 1948 but survived. He joined the Communist Party in 1960 in order to become General Secretary of the Composers Union. He's been heavily criticised for this step, the step which he claimed to have taken due to blackmail and which, according to Lebedensky, rendered him suicidal. Some critics have dismissed Shostakovich's work in his Seventh Symphony in particular. It's not to their taste, it's not in accord with their subjective idea of what music should be like, much as Lady Macbeth of the Matents was not to Stalin's taste. That subjectivity cannot overcome the importance of the work at the time and its importance today. For this reason, Dmitry Shostakovich is, for me, the greatest musician.
Uh, Clive, you joke about not winning and getting it out of the way because you know you're not going to win, but I think you've actually done something quite special there, which is <coughs> we've talked about how this is a subjective thing, music. So really we need to find someone where it's about more than the music. Uh, and I think Holmes, he's actually just smashed that out of the park. Well, I, I thought it was interesting. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it, it's even, even deciding on the criteria is difficult. I mean, I like the opening. And while Clive was talking, I quickly looked up definitions of musician because at some point in my head, I was kind of thinking, well, surely it's got to be the person that plays the instrument. Yeah. Otherwise, we'd be doing history's greatest composer, etc. But I found a couple of definitions. And actually, the second one said, musician is a person who composes, conducts or performs music. So I think we can include composers. So I think that's one of my... Uh, well, that's a stretch of love. Yeah. Um, and I listened to the track you reckon, you talked about then, Clive, this afternoon, which and I quite liked it. I, did, I wish you'd have told me what it was about, because it would have given it a bit more context. I mean, there's quite a, quite a number of moving parts to it. And and there were there were sort of loud bits, quiet bits, fast bits. I'm showing my lack of musical knowledge again there. But um, yeah, illustrate. Now, I, not knowing it was about the siege of Leningrad, now, now I know it would have been slightly clearer and it and it you know it is quite evocative with that hindsight yeah i guess the only issue i've got here is that you're talking about a specific song really i don't think you mentioned any others well i did i mentioned lady macbeth of what's what's his name but and i mentioned his fifth symphony at one stage and also his fourth which he suppressed was that was that track you made was that actually called lady macbeth of what's his name did you do something with chasm no, Davis? It's, it's lady macbeth of some unpronounceable Russian town. Josh, I think the point is that music as defiance, is that what makes him the greatest musician of all time? This is a lot more thoughtful and eloquent than I was expecting. I mean, I, I <laughs> was expecting, you know, Blondie uh, and the Wombles and I've got Shostakovich. And I think that's really, really interesting. Um, I'm learning all this. I mean, I didn't realise. I vaguely knew that he was writing as resistance to Nazism, but um, uh, I didn't know the, the connection with the siege of Leningrad. Um, and I, I, I think that's really, really interesting, really moving in the connection now with Ukraine. And, and um, uh, as a commentary on conflict, it, it sort of chimes up there with Spandau ballets um, behind the barricades. I think you'll all remember that. Um, the, I remember actually, Joking apart, I mean, I can remember a whole spate of, of songs based around the Troubles. Um, and, you know, when music gets involved in, in current affairs, what music does so well is to engage the emotions. And, you know, we all have our own personal things that we listen to during breakups or whatever. Um, and pop music does that so well. But I'm just fascinating listening while, while talking. I've, I've got a bit of Shostakovich was listening and listening to how it, it recreates the siege of Leningrad or attempts to, to relive um, emotionally the siege of Leningrad. And it's very hard, you know, when you listen to it and realise what it meant to the man who was creating it. I was going to say, um, it's as well for the people listening to it. Charlie, you study film. It's that scene in the Shawshank Redemption, isn't it? It's not, it might not be the finest opera song ever made that he plays over that loudspeaker to the prisoners. But if you were uh, trapped in Leningrad and all of a sudden that was coming over, yeah. it was the people sharing the siege with you as well. I don't know. Well, I feel under a sort of obligation to let it win now. 
you know, because it's, it's, it's not, I mean, the other the other issue that I had, but I mean, it, to a, there's a certain element of propaganda to this as well, though, is there not? And I, I don't of know. Of there's an element of propaganda because it was it was a, a weapon of war in its own right. And um, but I think one of the aspects of Shostakovich's propaganda is it was propaganda against the Nazis, but it wasn't propaganda in favour of Stalin. In fact, it was probably as much anti-Stalin as it was against as it was anti-Nazi. You know, I mean, I mean, there, someone's about to do the Pet Shop Boys. I mean, that's a political statement, actually. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that Pet Shop Boys and Shostakovich have a hell of a lot in common. So I, maybe I could I could give it to Pet Shop Boys over Shostakovich. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's immensely moving. Um, and the story, is, it was brilliantly put across there. Um, there. There is an excellent book by Brian Moynihan called Leningrad, which is all about, or primarily about the composition of this work, but also about the siege as well. And I would strongly recommend that. Maybe okay. somebody for Zach, someone to, for Zach to get on History Hat. Okay, thank you, Clive. Let's move on to another one. Where should we go next? Oh, Beth, you pick where we're going next. Mm. Um, look at her. She's already thinking, who can I sabotage who I don't want to go near the end because they'll beat me? <laughs> um, oh, Let's go with, because I know she's not feeling well, let's go with Heather. Oh, sure, pick on me. <laughs> Heather, if you're not doing Barry White, you've missed out on a massive opportunity. Um, I'm doing Dusty Springfield. Um, she, she was born Mary Isabel Catherine Bernadette O'Brien in West Hampstead, London, on April 16, 1939. She always loved singing. Um, her family was really big into, into um, music and stuff. Her brother got her her first guitar. Um, she joined a professional group. Uh, 1958, called the Lana Sisters, and then she uh, quit them and joined, created a group with her brother Tom Springfield and his friend Tim Field to form a folk pop band, the Springfields, that met with decent success, and then she started her solo career in 1963 and was popular throughout the 60s. <clears throat> Two of her sing signature songs are Son of the Preacher Man, and you don't have to say you love me. She wrote <clears throat> a few songs of her own, which in the 1960s was unheard of by a female singer and actually got a few of them uh, as B-sides on some of her records. Some of her pop popular songs were I Only Want to Be With You, Wishing and Hoping, I Don't Know What to Do With Myself, All Cried Out, Baby Don't You Know, just to name a few. She was a fixture on British TV, presenting on many episodes of Ready, Steady, Go from 1963 to 1966. She also hosted her own series between 1966 and 69. <clears throat> she was comfortable performing many different styles of music, was able to sing soul, blues, folk, country, Broadway ballads, Latin, rock and roll, pop music, and even techno pop. With as much um, musical um, a plum as she had, she could not actually read music. She did everything by ear. Um, she topped the popularity polls in 1966 and was Melody Maker's best international vocalist. She's in both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the UK Music Hall of Fame. She caused some controversy in 1964 by performing before an integrated audience in South Africa while on tour. 
at the time, the South African government had a segregation policy and her contract stipulated she would not perform to non-segregated audiences or to, she would not perform to segregated audiences. She performed a couple, a couple concerts to um, a good amount of black and white um, fans that were actually just having a good time. And <clears throat> she ended up getting deported. The press um, tried spinning it that that she was trouble and she was just causing trouble and um, basically made her out that she was a troublemaker and difficult to work with and everything. But she just did it because she felt that everybody should have a right to do what they wish in an area where everybody could just be with everybody. She didn't agree with racism and she was very much against segregation. She frequently sang back up <clears throat> larger artists, large artists like Kiki D, Anne Murray, Elton John, and uh, Madeline Bell. Um, most many of her records she self-produced, which also was part of at the time. Um, she's not credited with it, but um, she was the one who chose the backup singers. She's the one who chose the musicians. She frequently um, demanded numerous takes because she wanted to get the absolute best out of everybody that she could. This caused some problems with some men who just wanted to get it over with and frequently thought she was being, well, a bitch, <clears throat> but she just wanted perfection. Um, she knew what she wanted and she wanted to get, make sure that, you know, the fans and music lovers got the absolute best and what she wanted was what she put out. The 1970s saw her population de popularity decrease a little bit um, as she moved to the U.S. and pretty much became a recluse for a while to avoid uh, the U.K. tabloids and spec speculation about her sexuality. In the 60s and early 70s, gay or bisexual performers, quote, knew that being out would lead to purulent media attention, loss of record contracts. The tabloids became obsessively interested in the contents of celebrities' closets, unquote. <clears throat> Given that she had several romantic and domestic relationships in the U.S. and Canada during her time living in the U.S., as well as a couple was when she was living in the U.K., she was very paranoid that she'd lose her career if exposed as a lesbian. During this time, she became addicted to drugs and alcohol in the 70s or 80s, which unfortunately affected her mu music career, and her mental issues became more apparent with self-harm, causing hospitalizations several times for cutting herself. She was diagnosed as having bipolar disorder. She finally got the help that she needed. And at the end of the seventies, she put out two albums, one being well-received and the other one that was, it was well-received, but less popular. She performed in front of Princess Margaret, Margaret at a charity concert at the Royal Albert Hall in December, 1979. And the eighties saw her singing some duets and theme songs and putting out a CD that was influenced by the new wave genre. Also in the eighties in nineteen eighty. Seven, she collaborated with the Pet Shop Boys with What Have I Done to Deserve This, which helped revitalize her career. And in the 90s, also with the Pet Shop Boys, um, she worked on an album and two of the songs, uh, Nothing Has Been Proved and In Private, were um, heavily influenced by them. And she moved back to the UK to live. Um, in 90, 1994, she made her last album, before being diagnosed with breast cancer, chemo and radiation 
um, saw her to remission, but the cancer returned in 1996. She received the Order of the British Empire for her services to popular music while in the hospital in front of a small group of friends and relatives. Despite vigorous treatment, she passed away in Henley and on Thames, Oxfordshire on March 2nd, 1999 at age 59. <clears throat> a fun fact for the uh, cat lovers in the room, Dusty's elderly cat was written in her will and lived the last of his life in the lap of luxury. Completely pampered. Um, Dusty loved animals, especially cats, and was an advocate for animal protection groups. Basically, I think she's the best because she was a trailblazer and made inroads in music, showing what a woman could do and would do and doing it exceptionally well. I love her music because the emotions of her singing and the quality of music is just absolutely spectacular. If I'm in a bad mood or upset or sad, I can play Dusty Springfield and be in a great mood in just a few songs. I just can't be angry or upset when I listen to her music and it just speaks to me. So that's why I think she deserves it. Thank you, Heather. Uh, that was absolutely brilliant. Um, a very personal choice. Uh, I love the bit on the end. Well done for not dying whilst delivering that as well. <clears throat> there are some requests for things that the boys want you to say in that voice. Just say no to them all. Um, if you just feel free to give them all the finger. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. And Holmes, there was a mention of the Pet Shop Boys. I, I did. I mean, um, obviously that's going to be appreciated. But, um, you know, despite the... Um, I don't know, was it six or seven tracks she's done with the Pet Shop Boys? The best song she's done for me is, I don't know if anyone's heard Going Back by her, but that's an amazing song and completely opposite to the type of stuff she's done with the Pet Shop Boys. Um, I think that was a really strong shout. It's quite hard to pick any holes in there. I think um, being my age, it was sort of, I, I wasn't really aware of how big she was because obviously when I was sort of growing up, she wasn't that big, but you know, but she was she was massive. I think she was one of the first British female singers to, to make make a mark in America in America. You know, if you compare her to someone like her contemporary with Silla Black, you know, Silla Black did nothing in America compared to compared to you know Dusty Springfield. And you know, she's got such a, a legacy of um her back catalogue is incredible, you know, not just the Pet Shop Boys ones either. Um and the fact she wrote songs and produced songs, um and she also, I was Googling some stuff while he was speaking. There's some stuff I didn't know. And, you know, she was quite quick to embrace new, new types of music. It was her that introduced Motown to the UK, apparently, through cover versions and then setting up a setting up a TV show that was the first appearances by The Temptations of Supremes and Stevie Wonder, which is all this sort of stuff that we're not really aware of. But I think, you know, I think it wasn't just her singing all the other attributes she had. I think it's a really, really... Strong, strong claim. The final fact I found was that she wrote the uh, wrote and recorded the theme tune to the feature length editions of the Six Million Dollar Man. So who knew that? He had to cut some stuff out for <laughs> sure, or else I would have literally had a book. <laughs> Josh, one thing I didn't know about her at all um, was a sort of like the consistency Heather's describing there in uh, refusing to embrace any kind of bigotry as well. Yeah. I know, I mean, incredibly brave. I mean, that's another thing, you know, as an artist, she was a survivor. She made it all, I mean, you know, I, so I, I had a, one parent who endlessly played 60s music. So I grew up with a lot of her music around me. And she, for me, just totally epitomized the swinging 60s, which I, you know, when I was a kid, I just totally was in love. I wanted to have lived through this era um, and she epitomized it, but then she came back, she reinvented herself. And she made herself relevant. And, and that was, 
and in a brave way, you know, by being herself. And what really got me there was that, that it was such a personal pitch, such an emotional pitch. And um, I, I totally get it. And, and she had such an up and down life. She lived absolutely, you know, you, she wore a heart on her sleeve and you could see where she was at any given moment with her own mental health and her own emotions. And, um, and I, I Only Want to Be With You is one of my favorite songs of all time. It just gets me absolutely, when I hear it, I just want to get, get and her voice also, it's so, you know, it gives itself to different kinds of music. It can be really poppy or it can be really sort of heart tugging. Um, yeah, how the hell you compare with Shostakovich? Christ knows. But, but I mean, I, I just I think she's fantastic. I, I've always thought she's fantastic. Um, so yeah. If I was going to make a, a personal pitch like that, I'd probably go for Tina Turner. If I was going to bother to do a pitch, which I didn't, because I've got so much else on. But again, that's like a woman who, for a woman in her forties, who was told or fifties almost by the time that album came out in the eighties, who's told like you've had it a domestic violence survivor to come around and reinvent herself the way that she did um, and just basically put on a pair of stilettos and give the entire planet the finger, um, for me, provokes a similar thing to, I think, what Heather's describing as well. Oh, this is going to be so difficult for you. And, and Tina Turner also worked with the Pet Shop Boys as well. I don't want to keep banging on about this. But... Yeah. <laughs> everyone, Actually, everyone. I mean, Beth is currently online trying to figure out how she can shoehorn the Pet Shop Boys into her pitch, which when you hear <laughs> she's doing you'll laugh your head off um actually but... you know this is a woman from from west hampstead who ended up singing son of a preacher man i mean it's that's pretty impressive you know when when you're talking about domestic violence um dusty actually survived that too because one of her uh her um partners got into a huge fight and smacked her with a ban and broke her two front teeth and caused a lot of damage they both ended up in the hospital so there's a lot that she's survived in that realm too that not very many people know about okay she's another really strong one but like josh says how the hell are you going to end up trying to compare that to uh shostakovich well let's just continue to to fuck them right up basically and keep giving them more and more options uh let's go to i'm trying to remember who's doing what let's go i think back a lot further in time to zach Okay, I can't shoehorn the Pet Shop Boys into this one, I'm sorry to say, and I'm not even going to attempt to. As we've talked about a lot tonight already, the big question is what does it take to be the greatest musician in all of recorded history? Is it an ability to push the boundaries, taking the art form in exciting new directions? Is it using their craft to do good, inspiring people to take up the cause of humanity and unite in the name of love rather than hate? Is it as simple as being able to tap into our nervous system, to use a means of expression that in many cases literally cannot be put into words, to transport us to amazing places, real and imagined, and guide us through the whole spectrum of human emotions? To achieve any one of those things would unquestionably make a musician great, but the greatest? That requires more. All of the areas that I've just mentioned, and then some. So tonight, I want to bring you the story of a master of their craft. A world-renowned talent whose music has withstood the test of 200 years and yet still remains relevant. Who, yes, pushed boundaries, 
who stood by their principles, whose art helped to win a war, unified a continent. And you know what is still more remarkable? The man whose music achieved all of this was not even able to hear the very notes he was writing. My friends, listeners, esteemed judges, I give you Ludwig von Beethoven. I'm not going to give you a long run through of Beethoven's life, we'd be here all night, but to give you a sense of context, Beethoven was born in Bonn in 1770 and died in 1827. He is unquestionably a master of his art form, sitting at a turning point in the transition of music. What we refer to as the classical period is actually a split epoch. You have a Baroque phase from 1600 to 1750. You have the classical in true forms phase from 1750 to 1820, and then a romantic phase from 1820 to 1900. Beethoven was at his peak between the 1790s and 1825. He literally sits at that point where classical music reached its, its apotheosis, its high point, um, and then began to transition into romanticism. And you can hear that influence that he goes on to have in his music and particularly his later works and the way in which they start to move from that pure harmony that is class typical of the, of the classical uh, genre into some of these sort of slightly more dissonant sounds that come through. He was an individual whose head was not turned by success. He remained tied to his principles. His third symphony, Eroica, was originally de dedicated to Napoleon, but he became disillusioned by Napoleon proclaiming himself emperor in 1804 and therefore scratched out the dedication from the title page. So, such was his disgust with uh, Napoleon's self-serving attitudes. He was certainly prolific, producing 722 works in his life, including nine symphonies, 12 concertos, 18 overtures, 17 quartets, 37 piano sonatas, including famously Moonlight Sonata, and five operas. He was by no means the most prolific. That title very easily goes to Mozart. But as we know from the world of history, and, and particularly uh, certain historians, quantity is not necessarily a guarantee of quality. The key, therefore, to assessing greatness is surely legacy. And on that score, we have two major areas to think about. The first is the Second World War. As a German composer, it was, of course, inevitable that Beethoven's work was going to be appropriated by the Nazis. He was by no means the only one um, to uh, be treated in that way. But some genius whose name, unfortunately, I have not been able to turn up, had a careful listen to Symphony Number no. 5. And the, as Clive has already said, the ba-ba-ba-ba, that was meant to be an attempt at singing. It doesn't sound anything like that. You're just going to have to deal with that. And they drew the connection with the Morse code for V for victory, which is dot, 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 dash. And so, as part of the BBC's propaganda efforts to undermine the Nazi regime in what was a monumental fuck you, essentially, to the Nazis, they opened every broadcast to occupied Europe with those opening notes of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. The other thing I want to dwell on is the way that, as I mentioned earlier, Beethoven's music was used to unify a continent. His final symphony, Ode to Joy, was adopted as the anthem for Europe in 1972. His music was literally used to try and bring a whole continent of people together. I talked about his deafness. Beethoven 
began struggling with his hearing from 1791, bearing in mind that his most prolific phase was from about 1810 onwards, he was basically composing at a time when he couldn't even hear what he was writing. To do that, he had the legs taken off of his piano, so effectively what he was using was the vibrations from his piano to literally kind of feel the music that he was writing. And we have one of the most moving moments in music history from the time of the performance, the first performance of his final symphony. Beethoven was completely deaf by this point. He wasn't actually uh, able to conduct anymore because he couldn't hear what was going on around him. But he was nonetheless um, on stage when that piece was performed, but he was facing the orchestra. The musicians finished their piece. The crowd went absolutely ballistic. He received a standing ovation. Beethoven remained stood facing the orchestra. He could not hear the rapture of the audience behind him. It was only when the leading choralist physically turned him around to see the crowd behind him that people that Beethoven actually realized the impact that his music had had on his audience. It's very difficult to hear a story like that and not be moved just ever so slightly because that taps into the essence of what music is. Music is there to touch your soul and whatever mood you're in, you can find a bit of Beethoven to achieve exactly that. Sometimes his music is kind of disturbing and it sits on the edge where it kind of grates your teeth and unsettles you. In other cases, as with Ode to Joy, you don't need to be able to understand German to get the sentiment that he's trying to portray to you. The ultimate question is, what is the greatest musician? So consider this, how good do you have to be as a master of your art to be able to achieve all of the things that I've said and not even be able to hear what you've written? Surely a deaf composer who's able to unify a continent to be used to bring down an, the Nazi regime, to touch people in so many ways, qualifies as the greatest musician in history. Oh, Zach, 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 well done. Do you know, you deserve better than us. You really do, because this was an You absolute bastard. <laughs> I had to stop <laughs> looking at the screen because you're all pissing yourselves. And I didn't dare look at the chat. But <laughs> it wasn't the chat. Bastard. It was when I turned to Beth and said, I'm fucking going on about him being deaf. It's his own fault. Didn't he hack his own ear off? Oh, no, wait. Wasn't that Picasso? And she went, no, Van Gogh. Was that was Van Gogh, you idiot. <laughs> I was, I was, and oh, the, do you know what? The problem was you used a very big word in the beginning and everyone said, well, it's because he's a doctor now. And then the, the chat was full of things like absolutely, <laughs> just made up big words. Uh, but you took that very seriously and it was very heartfelt. And my stone cold heart was a little bit moved by the bit about him not turning around because he didn't know that um, everybody was applauding him, which is, is quite sad. It is sad. But um, Holmes, were you moved? Well, it's quite a good show. I mean, the, the, the death thing is intriguing, but do we know that they were actually playing the music that he'd written? They could have played something else. <laughs> it might have been better. They were playing the Pet Shop Boys. This is a documented <laughs> fact. Yeah. That they were actually I, playing West End Girls. I can't, I can't shoo in a Pet Shop Boys reference to this, but I can a Depeche Mode one. If, uh, that, well, basically, they, um, Moonlight Sonata was the B-side of... Uh, their single Little 15 that they released in May 98. I didn't know that. 
which puts yeah. Zach in with a shout now in Holmes's <laughs> world and, and flies even further away from victory. Uh, it's, go on. It's, it's a tough one because obviously it's another strong, strong contender. They're almost incomparable, really. I think me and Josh, we haven't, we might have to just have our own top three tonight. I think that'd be fairer and give everyone a, everyone a chance. Um, yeah, it's a strong, strong contender. I mean, all of the, the benefits. Was he? Well, I don't. Assumingly, he was quite popular at the time. He wasn't like one of these artists that was penniless to his life. And no, he was popular. He had um, some pretty powerful patrons. At one point, he's got a couple of princes in his pocket, an archduke, who were kind of paying him to um, put this stuff together. So he doesn't really produce a lot of music without somebody kind of supporting him on a on a regular basis. Um, that didn't necessarily make his music propaganda. It just meant that um, it was quite common. Tchaikovsky, who's another one of the greats of this period, 1812 Overture, um, he's got the same kind of thing going on. I think Tchaikovsky actually has quite a fractious relationship with one of his patrons. Um, I think the patron wants there to be a romantic interest there. Um, Beethoven's not a perfect individual by any means. There's lots that's unpleasant about him. He was a grumpy, grumpy bastard. Um, but he was a musician who was going deaf, so... I remember hearing I remember hearing a story about it. I vaguely went a long time ago that he was given some food, he was in a restaurant and they he was served something and he just went he got the wrong order and he went crazy, turned the plate over, he threw a lamb chop or whatever it was at the waiter. He was I mean, I don't know much more than that, but he clearly had his issues going on. He was could be quite unpleasant. And I find that I find that quite interesting as well when people people who are essentially unpleasant people create this unbelievable mu music that sort of unites others and you know the whole idea of, of, of the unpleasant artist in different degrees like JLo in a <laughs> difficult phase her <laughs> difficult I'm just Jenny from the block face exactly. given a better example there um, did JLo did don't, don't go against a queen Churchill do you not dare diss JLo I did, do you know what I love? Kit has just necked a bottle of wine from the bottle. He's so classy. And the Nazis use him as, I mean, uh, Moonlight Sonata was the Coventry raid. Um, In fact, there were individuals within the Nazi regime who um, came up with some particular bullshit suggestions about how if you were falling out of love with Beethoven, there was a certain kind of regime of music and a kind of sequence that you should listen to his music to in order to get back into it because it just wasn't acceptable to not love Beethoven within yeah. Nazi Germany. Oh, he did. He really united people. That's nice. Um, well, I mean, it's a brilliant pitch. And yeah, now we've got Shostakovich, um, Beethoven and Dusty Springfield. So, yeah. It's only going to get more I think, crazy. I, mean, here. I, I think Beethoven has to lose points because he did fuck all during the siege of Leningrad. Yeah. To be honest. <laughs> Just laziness, right? Yeah. <laughs> do you know what I love about you guys? What I love about History Hack? No one's doing Mozart, are they? Do you know why no one in this room is doing Mozart? Because... He's a little bitch. Yeah, exactly. Because, <laughs> oh, he was doing sonatas by the time he was three. Just fuck off. Overachiever. That was the attitude of everybody in this room. Don't deny it. Uh, which is the reason that nobody is going to be arguing that Mozart is the greatest musician of all time. Uh, right, okay. Just so you know, if any actually, of you... Actually, Alex, that's unfair. I'm sure James would have done Mozart if he'd been <laughs> on. 
He'd have watched the film Amadeus. It was necessary. Uh, he'd have done right? musicians on the Titanic, surely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! I bet he would have done. Actually, I'm pretty sure he would have done. Although, can I just say, in defence of that Amadeus film, that laugh that he did, the character laugh for Mozart was brilliant. That made me laugh the entire way through the film. And apparently is nailed on. That was a character flaw, if you like, of Mozart's was this ridiculous high-pitched laugh. Uh, and I learned that from reading Wikipedia, just like James would have done if he'd have done the pitch. Right, OK, <laughs> let's go for... Uh, we love you, James. We love you. Uh, Beth and I might be a bit drunk. Uh, we're going to go and get more drinks now and then we'll be back to do some more. Okay, we're back. Uh, Kit has selected his pizza toppings. Clive is deep throating something of dubious origin that he claims is a pear. Um, and I think Josh is just... What's Josh reading? Our man in... He's like, oh no, busted, busted. <laughs> right, okay. Let's move on because we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, five and a half. Because next I'm going to go to uh, Kit who's taken this massively seriously tonight. I, I, I absolutely have taken this really, really seriously. Um, just let me order this pizza and I'll be right with you. <laughs> okay. Rightio. Um, so I came here not intending to do anybody at all. Um, my first thought when I heard the topic was a combination of who gives a fuck, which is basically my support for Joe Strummer, and... Well, obviously, it's Bob Dylan, isn't it? Because of his role in protest, because of his eloquence and his meaning, and because of the fact that he's won a Nobel Prize. And didn't he do the Hurricane song? He did do the Hurricane I song. I love that song. But no. The best musician has to be not just popular, it has to not just inject meaning, but he has to be so good that he can eclipse even the waking horror of David Bowie's tight pants in Labyrinth or the drug field ranting about a laughing gnome. And for that, we need one man who is crazy enough to do it. Lord Andrew Lloyd Webber, the Lord of the <laughs> West. A man who made a musical about Jesus. A man who made a musical about a bunch of people pretending to be choo-choo trains and fuckering around a stage on roller skates. A man who made a tragedy about a stroppy dictator's wife who hung out with General Franco. A man whose signature musical is a hero uh, that is a creep who lives in a sewer and abducts women. But the true epoch of Lloyd Webber's genius, why we still don't talk about Lin-Manuel, no, 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 is his waking crack dream of Cats. For those who haven't seen it, Cats is the world's most stupid musical a musical that was designed for musical theatre kids. The story, a bunch of genital cats. The song's about that, but we still have absolutely no idea what a genital cat is. Meet up once a year to have a sing-off. The winner of this singing contest, as chosen by an obese Jabba the Hutt of the proceedings called Deuteronomy, gets ritually sacrificed and dies when they are abducted by a UFO and are reborn in a magical heaven. Various cats compete for this honour, doing a little song about their own weird stereotype, and then they jog off. Only four of the characters in this musical nightmare, where everyone's dressed as a bloody cat, have any purpose at all. You've got Deuteronomy being a kind of shit Simon Cowell. You've got Grizabella, the unloved alley cat who wins. Macavity, an evil cat that abducts Deuteronomy for the lols. And magical Mr. Mistopheles, who rescues Deuteronomy. 
That is it. That is the only thing that happens in the entire two and a half hour musical. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of otherwise unemployable actors prancing about on the stage in costume. And that is where we have the magic of Andrew Lloyd Webber. He can take some kind of cheese riddled fever dream and turn it into the most popular musical in the world. He went on, of course, to write several other massive hits, and then he became a TV judge himself, sat on a golden throne where one show required failed contestants to, and I wish I was making this up, insert pointless key change here, hand in their shoes and fly off on a fucking moon. This risable shit is why Lloyd Webber has to be the best. He can take such utter bollocks and turn it into a worldwide phenomenon that inspires millions. And if he doesn't, if that doesn't count for you judges, here is a good reason. It's because he can make Beth do this. Come on, Beth, I know you want to. I close my eyes, drew back the curtain. Ah! There we go. She knew she wanted to. There you go, ladies and gentlemen. Lloyd Lord Webber, someone who can make Beth sing. <laughs> right. Silence, everybody. Judges, I'll come back to you in a second. Because Kit, you've done it again, my friend. I'm going to go what? to Sam. Sam, do you want to make your pitch now for the greatest musician of all time? <laughs> oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> <laughs> you're going down, my friend. Down. <laughs> new person as this new person who has stayed her claim to this um quite early on I, I feel betrayed Kit I feel very betrayed I respected you I liked you but never mind uh, so hopefully we'll work in tandem it's fine um so first of all I just hope I have no musical knowledge this may undermine my entire argument to some people but maybe in collaboration with Kits it won't um well what I do know is feelings and music is and there's always been about feelings from war marches to green sleeves to uh, Tay-Tay, who may come up later, uh, her version of All Too Well. Music conveys feelings and appeals to people's abilities to identify or imagine. And crucial to this, it's, uh, it's not only powerful music, but a narrative. And so what I was going to present to you as the musical, uh, musical mastermind was Andrew Lloyd Webber. So, well, hey, tag teaming. But instead of you who, who took the piss out of Andrew Lloyd Webber, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring it to you as actually Andrew Lloyd Webber. When I floated this idea to my housemate Lawrence, he responded, oh, surely it should be Tim Rice as he wrote most of the famous lyrics. But lyrics without music is just bad fucking poetry. With 21 musicals to his name, the mighty Andrew Lloyd Webber has written music for uh, the West End powerhouses such as Cats, which you, you, you took the piss out of, uh, the Phantom of the Opera, School of Rock, and my personal favourite, Evita. Most recently, he's released a version of Cinderella that completely shits on the original bullshit where the prince can't identify his love after the ball by her feet, which on a little side note, a little side note rant, guys. I mean, come on. What man who falls in love with a woman goes, oh, I can't recognise the love of my life. I can only see her by her feet. Fuck off. I'm a a dumbass, Sam. That's it. Yes, I would not look at someone's Look at their personality, guys. Calm down. Um. So where was I? Yes. Rant about Cinderella. Let's go, Cinderella. Uh, he defies the original bullshit where the prince can't identify his love, uh, and he creates a musical about a woman who who knows who she is, 
but learns to understand the vulnerability of love, uh, whilst the prince also learns to appreciate what's in front of him. Jesus Christ, boys. So uh, surely no one can deny the beautiful, powerful and belting chorus of Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And I, I feel a bit weird saying this after Kit's pitch, but no, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. So the powerhouse of that is, is just undeniable. Uh, it's the final words of a strong woman taken too soon by cancer. And it's a chorus that will surely endure and it will be playing to audiences for centuries. Uh, in the same musical, we have another suitcase in another hall, and that, that's a song by Peron's young mistress who's booted out of her vicarious position by the new wife of Ita. And it's twinkly, and it's young, and it's innocent, despite being a sad song about losing security and having to move on. Um, and and, and it's just, it, just, it just shows the resignation of this young woman's reliance on men, whilst also being like, just a beautiful song. Memories and Cats originally sung by Elaine Page as a poignant ballad, and it evokes both the, the medicine and lamentability of living in the past and to better times. Phantom of the Opera celebrates its fifth, their 35th year in the West End. 35th year. Now I know that seems nothing compared to the 200 or something years that Zach said earlier about Beethoven, but that's only because of literal years. Like, as in, Phantom of the Opera has only been able to be out for 35 years. In 200 years, it will probably have been out 235 years because it is that popular. It's been only by Mousetrap and Les Mis. So in the West End, it is only, it's like, it's the third longest running. And bearing in mind that all the other ones after that are pretty much Andrew Lloyd Webber. Music will always be subjective. But to me, Lloyd Webber captures narratives emotionally before the lyrics even make it to your ears. People go back to these shows time and time again because they want to feel that musical emotion within them. On stage, it is undeniably a collaborative effort between composer, lyricist, orchestra, and actor, but his music is remembered and hummed long after you've forgotten the lyrics. Well done, Sam. Can I just, <clears throat> a minor correction though. Uh, Memory was originally sung by like five-year-old Alex in a school production where they, oh. They molested the shit uh, out of that musical. Find and it. Find it and show it to me. No, because it is the reason to this day that I have a phobia of animal print because they made me wear a leopard skin jumper um, and it so scarred me that to this day I don't own one single thing with animal print on it and it makes me heave. I find it repulsive. <laughs> and it's because of five-year-old Alex wearing brown tights um, over her knickers and a jumper that barely covered her ass that was disgusting standing on stage singing while a big fat girl mimed a dance dressed as a cat in a unitard that is why Alex has a phobia of what animals. I love about that story Alex is that they looked at the entire musical of cats and they thought what suits Alex best I know the crazy bag lady <laughs> yeah exactly and I was like fine but I wasn't even like I was on a little stage on the side dressed in the most hideous jumper known to man that everyone thought was the most flattering thing ever because like it was the teachers and she let me wear it um and while I, this this big tub of lard paraded around in a, in a unitard with a tail I, sh I should just point out for those because obviously this is a podcast and no one's watching the cameras that I'm pretty certain Sam is going to try and kill me in the next week. Yeah. So, Can I just say, though, that my mum still hasn't let that night go because the fat girl in the unitard mimed 
And my mum got it in her head that everybody thought she was singing and that she got the credit for the singing and not her baby. So my mum is still not over that night. Still not over. Well, it's not over until the fat lady sings, Alex. Well, she mimed in this case, but yeah, <laughs> bitch. Yeah. Anyway, judges, you've been pulled this way and that in the last 10 minutes. Uh, Kit is now sleeping with one eye open forever. Uh, Zach's laughing his head off. Holmes, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I'm I'm not a fan at all. You're not into um, musicals at all, no, are you? No, no. Uh, I, I mean, my theory is that musicals only exist so blokes in Rotary clubs have got something to take their wives to, and the music is at that level as well. If you ask me, um, uh, I didn't take any notes when Kit was speaking because he wasn't taking it seriously. Out of politeness, I took a few when Sam was speaking, but I mean, uh, are his musicals any better than any others? Is he the best musical writer? Oh, his musicals are amazing. They are probably maybe oh, just above, but maybe mm, just about level, but actually I'd say just above Stephen Sondheim. But do you, is it not Emerald Fennel that's written the Cinderella plot? It's an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. It's 100% billed as Andrew Lloyd Webber musical. He's her completely... name is all over it as the writer. Sorry. But also, I mean, that brings if me... If you weren't my... having a bad enough night. That, that brings me on to my other, no, other point, it, which bring, brings me on to my other point, which is like, he's taking a lot of existing works and just taking them and turning them into musicals, isn't he? Is that not what any... That's what Shakespeare Let's talk about how Shakespeare is a plagiarist. Yeah, he was shit as well. I love that. Midsummer Night's Dream is the only original Shakespeare story. Every other one was taken. So that's. In terms of Lloyd Webber, there's some pretty pretty established stories that were out there already that he's just reset. I mean, you know, I, 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 it's. It's difficult for me because I, I really don't like music because I once sat through Jesus Christ Superstar in about 1999 and I, I've not been that bored since. I couldn't wait for it to finish. I kept going to the toilet when I didn't even need to go. It was that bad. It was, uh, and also, despite what you said about, you know, his um, ability to connect to emotions and his empathy, but he did fly back from New York in October 2015 to vote against tax cuts in tax credits with the Tory government. He also flew back from New York in August 1985, and I know that because he was in the row behind me, so I, I can claim to have slept with Lloyd Webber and with Sarah Brighton on the same night. And on that note, Joshua, are you going to be nicer about musicals? I love musicals. I absolutely love them. You named um, your cat after a character in a musical. Exactly, exactly. Tevia um, from Fiddler on the Roof. Um, I, Cats and Dolls, West Side Story, Company by Sondheim. I love musicals. And um, I have a problem with a lot of Lloyd Webber. I mean, Starlight Express, what, what's going on? With some, I mean, you know, I, I really, I'm not joking. I mean, I, I think some of them, I think I've seen most of them. Evita, I think, is really genuinely good. Um, uh, jo- I, when I was a kid, I loved Joseph. I loved a lot of the songs in Joseph. But, I mean, he's also, someone's played, he's, he's a musical kleptomaniac. I mean, he steals tunes. And somebody played to me once, I don't ask why, but somebody played to me his, orig- his and the originals. And it's amazing. And I, in a way, Kit's got a brilliant argument there, genuinely brilliant argument, because he's made the most successful career on some really shady grounds. You know, he's still he's stolen lots of tunes. Some of them are frankly ludicrous. Um, 
And you've got to admire him for that. You've got to really admire somebody who's, who's been dodgy in a number of ways and has yet become absolutely the public's favourite. People just, you know, the fact the Starlight Express came out, which is, what the fuck is that? And people flocked to see it. And it was on for 700 years. You know, it started in, in, during the Vikings. and it's, yes. there's, a, there's, there's a lot of rotary clubs in this country, Josh. You know, just yeah, to, that's what I'm saying. But I have to say, I love musicals. And some of his stuff, I, I mean, I agree. Another suitcase in another hall. It's a beautiful song. And I don't know. Evita can fuck um, off. I, they once tried to teach <laughs> us to... I had to do songs from Evita in a show and learning to... Singing Latin whilst parading round in the shape of a cross was an excruciating experience that I never wanted. I would to love to watch that. I, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm completely with Joshua on musicals in that I, I actually quite like musicals. I enjoy them. Um, I can't stand um, some of the some of some of the modern musicals. Um, I really like um, some of the stuff that Lin Manuel Miranda's doing. I think he's doing quite interesting stuff with music. Sondheim is fantastic. If you look at what the satire he does, Assassins. If anyone's not familiar with that particular musical, it's absolutely genius what he's doing. He's not just taking um, songs; he's taking satire, he's taking history, and he's making a point. Um, and that's when musicals are fantastic. Yeah. That's what they can do. Billy Webber just produces risable, popular shit. But the worst thing about musicals is, you know, you have your big songs, right? I get that bit, and then you have those bits in between where it's sort of singing, but it would be better if it was speaking in a normal dialogue. Why don't they do that? You still get the big songs. If you if you can't see it, you can't see it. What, what yeah. can I play? I, just I mean, never yeah, yeah. song musicals. You know, Sweet Charity's got a lot of talking in it. Paul Simon wrote the work, wrote the book for it. The look <laughs> of sort of like an evil Zoe Deschanel that's coming after me, and I'm kind of scared and kind of aroused. But it's okay because Josh is kind of in your corner as well. I, I, I just I watch him on these programs where he's judge judging, and he's so sort of unpleasant and judgmental. And but Josh, just you know, as we both judging isn't an easy job. We both know that. No, know. but look how charismatic you're being and, ple- and delightful, <laughs> and everyone is loving you for the way you're doing it. But he has no jaw either, so he just looks like a mean little toad. That's what I hate most. His lack. Not of a very nice thing to say about Holmes. I've had worse. I could take that. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd screenshotted Kit doing an impression of that, Drew Lloyd Webber. It's brilliant. Oh, I love it. We'll be able to. That was spot on. You can't deny it. Yeah, no, there was. It was uncanny. Right. Let's move along before Sam really loses her shit uh, and go to. <clears throat> I'm going to go to Lockie because I don't actually know who Lockie's doing. Ah, well, I'm doing someone who played a significant role in the Siege of Leningrad. Actually. <laughs> was it one uh... of the Pet Shop Boys? <laughs> no, but it's someone who, uh, on after much research, uh, described my person. Uh, no, uh, Neil Tennant described my person as like the Margaret Thatcher of pop music. Um, I think. Uh, I think. I think about economic awareness. I think as much as anything. Um, I'm, I'm talking about Taylor Swift, actually. Um, it's, uh, I mean, I did think about some criteria for this, as you do, and I thought there's got to be some international recognition, hasn't there? There's got to be like sales or views or downloads or something. There's, there's got to be the kind of traditional measures for uh, um, uh, someone. And I, I did kind of drift into the modern world. It's got to be someone who plays an instrument uh, for me. I mean, a musician, yeah, you could potentially just have a singer, but ideally kind of singing and instruments, I think, kind of helps with the, with the claim as being a great musician. I think there's got to be critical acclaim 
as well. I think there's got to be people in the industry, not necessarily just about sales or anything like that, but you know, people around uh, who know music who say that this person's good uh, as well. And so kind of awards and stuff like that. Yeah, t- true. But also the kind of talent and aptitude and application um, that you, you hope to see. But then there's the kind of X factor too, the kind of thing that um, elevates them, enhances your kind of greatness. And whether it's you know, it might come through the adversity that you experience or you know, maybe like personality or maybe even just a funny story or something like that. I think we X Factor is difficult to quantify, uh, of course. Yes, uh, there's lots of superstars that we're talking about uh, tonight and some less good ones as well. But Taylor Swift, Tay-Tay herself. Um, basics, uh, she has got uh, around about 200 million record sales in or, or, or downloads or whatever it is various formats in which you can acquire music about 200 million or so um at the last count uh, which is about the same as queen um but she's had about 35 years less uh, than queen in which to accrue them um as far as awards go oh god there's so many there's dozens dozens hundreds of awards i mean she's obviously like an ever present in like country uh, awards and has been for about 15 years but you know things like oh, i don't know bbc international artist of the year billboard music awards uh she's been cleaning that up um sorry, Lockie. especially lucky i'm sorry lucky i'm gonna let you finish but beyonce had one of the best awards series of all time you motherfucking time. dick you, you could piss off everyone in the room because i was getting to that you <laughs> asshole <laughs> fuck off kit Mute yourself and piss off. <laughs> right, where was I? Yes, I'm going to get to that as well. <laughs> Adversity. Now, by, by rights, I should win now after that outburst. Um, anyway, where were we? Uh, Billboard. Oh, other loads of them. Christ, what she had? Uh, BMI, absolutely love her. She won about 60 awards with them. Um, uh, two Brit Awards, Best International Female. Oh, she's last year's Global Icon award with the brit awards uh 42 grammy nominations uh with 11 wins across a load of categories uh, she's the only woman to win best album three times there she's got 24 mtv awards i would just go on and on and on and on with the number of awards awards she's won um it's ridiculous uh really point made hopefully um there's there's no doubt she has talent she is popular she has sold by the fuckload she is popular popularity isn't everything i appreciate that um there is more to it so is the quality really there i mean yeah have you got to say yes haven't you the awards have got to count for something but i mean despite she's only 32 32 she's been around for yonks it feels like her first album dropped in 2006 and she's moved through genres as she's gone. Uh, she's had country, of course, but straight pop, retro themes, electro pop. She's written herself a career's worth of content and she's still going. There's years more to go. She's incredibly prolific. She's still um, coming up with new stuff. And, uh, you know, there are some things that don't work, uh, for which I largely blame Andrew Lloyd Webber, uh, by the way. So I'm glad Kat. Uh, K- Cats came up. Thank you, uh, Kit. You can um, have my uh, gratitude uh, now. Um, the musical adaptation of Cats was not a, a highlight of her career, I don't think. Um, 
but you know, when you're that prolific, some things ain't going to work. There's a subjectivity to throw into this, of course, but there's just so many total bangers that she has produced. I mean, Shake It Off, I think, has now maybe overtaken Love Story, finally. Um, but it is top, top draw and so difficult to not get up and dance to, let alone be miserable to. Um, but I knew you were trouble. Uh, we are never, ever, ever, ever getting back together. You need to calm down. 22. Uh, just loads and loads of top floor-filling songs, party starters. Um, so everyone, everyone just enjoys it. That's the kind of emotional side of things. They're difficult not to dance to. Um, I've got personal story of uh, me my dad and my brother sitting in a car and we all went off and got a bargain basement uh, cd from the um from uh, a, a record shop in ladysmith they've got a meatloaf one dad got some generic rock one and i got red by taylor swift which one do we listen to the most on the trip red by taylor swift because we all really enjoyed it um so i mean th- we've all got little i don't know even i've got little stories like that about taylor swift what else sets her apart um, well, I mean, she's essentially wholesome, isn't she? She's wholesome, popular, she's nice looking, and she's talented, and she's a singer-songwriter. Okay, and that's, I guess, maybe the point. I mean, she does write her own music, um, which that twat Damon Albarn tried to call her out on, and, and, and she threw a massive elbow his way, and deservedly so. But that leads into my kind of point about why I think she's so likable she has developed a fuck you attitude um, which I think is valuable exemplary and frankly wonderful I mean since 2009 um, which uh, Kit demonstrated for us a moment ago when a pissed up Kanye West bimbled onto the stage to interrupt Taylor when she was up for a video award um, she might have been seen as something of a, a soft touch you know there was criticism of her personal life uh, as well with men and dating but she spun that around into absolutely banging songs that criticism she just turned around for herself and did it in such a smart way uh, as well and the way that she's approached the dispute with her old record label or the new owner of her old record record label kicks ass too and maybe i don't know if holmes knows something about this uh, with his work thing the problem essentially centered around an intensely dislikable fella called scooter braun is it is that his name um asshole uh, who acquired taylor's old record label after she left it um and with it acquired a lot of the rights to uh, her music I, I think taylor had wanted to buy her old master recordings videos and copyright copyrighted bits and bobs from the old lot this new fella refused and also forbade her from using her, her her biggest hits in like awards ceremonies and TV shows and things like that, which was a blow. But what could she do? Um, the sound recordings were owned by someone else. And the convention is that master recordings are held by the owners in perpetuity. And that's a problem. Well, it could be worse. Um, a set of rights that Taylor hadn't sold were publishing rights. And her response, therefore, was to say, fuck you. I'm going to re-record all my old stuff, so you don't own it anymore and you don't have any kind of possession over it. I'll do what I like with it. I'll pull the rug out from under you. And I'm really surprised that wasn't wargamed a little bit beforehand because actually someone with the screw you mentality that she has 
could really do that. And it's it's a smart thing and it's a good thing. So she's done two of her albums so far, um, which do sound a little bit different to the originals, but but certainly no worse. Her fans absolutely love it. She's vocal on equal rights across gender and sexuality. She has a platform to do so as a result of her total bangers. I re-emphasize this. She has wicked music. Um, she's got a catalogue of them because she's excellent, she's talented, she's hardworking, and she hasn't just coasted to success. She's been patronised, publicly embarrassed by dickheads in an industry that treats women like shite. Uh, she's taken on adversity to champion and inspire others. She's become a top-selling, multi-multi-multi-award-winning artist in the process with many, many more years to come. As well, and even if you don't want to name her as the best musician in history tonight, I guarantee that in 20 years' time, we will have virtually no doubt whatsoever. She is going to be right at the top, top. Taylor Swift, she's absolutely fucking brilliant. There you go. Bravo. I love you, Lockie, but... <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm just going to say as well... Holmes left midway through that. I think he went for a slash. I only went to get a beer. It's my drinking time now. Yeah. I was still listening. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Go on then, Taylor Swift. Um, I, I mean, the, the, the thing about re-recording of original six albums is quite innovative. Um, and then for that, I mean, basically how music That's works. That's why she's going to be remembered, because there was the original rift with Spotify about her, because she was the high profile one talking about the amount of money they were getting for rights on that as well. So that is what she will be remembered for, I guess. Well, I mean, the, the way music normally works is that, you, you know, music, music, as we're talking about, it consists of two separate copyrights. You've got the music in the underlying composition the sheet music if you like and then you've got the music in the sound recording so those two things are completely separate 
So she entered into a record deal with her old record company. Um, and when you enter into a record deal, that basically gives you the exclusive right to exploit the recordings. But the publishing rights, the composition, the sheet music, that's held by somebody else. So then she didn't like the uh, bloke that acquired the record company that held the rights in all her recordings. So because she, she has access to or owns her own publishing rights, she can then, she gets permission to re-record them and then... There's no conflict with the recordings that are held by a record company because these new recordings are separate recordings and they've got their own separate copyright. So she's free to exploit it. But producing them at the same level is expensive. So that's probably, I think she was, her aim is to record her first six albums. And that's probably why she's only done two at the moment. She's currently in a dispute over um, oh, something on Red, isn't she? I can't remember. It's, it's something akin to what Ed Sheeran's just been through recently. Um, as well, I can't remember. Well, so there's a, there's a a potential claim for copyright infringement because yeah, Ed, I think, Ed Sheeran I think, just Ed Sheeran just won, didn't he? So yeah, he did. Um, and I think I think Taylor Swift probably going to win as well. But um, yeah, I think she she may end up um, doing Reputation before she does 1989. Also going slightly out of order with the re-recordings, but yeah. But in terms of music, I mean, I. I I think I'm probably a bit too old for it, personally. I don't think it's bad. I just think it's not for me. I think, I don't know, coming up to 50, one of the issues I have with music, and, I, you know, I basically listen to a lot of electronic music, which some of you may or may not have realised, but I find with music these days, it's just a bit boring. It's not, when I when I was growing up, it was sort of, you know, it was considered to be, I was just the arse end of punk at the beginning of New Wave sort of thing. And, you know, even stuff that got in the charts, people were worried that it was edgy and a bad influence. Whereas now, I don't get any of that. I just get... It's a bit boring, really. <laughs> Maybe it's me. Maybe it's my age. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, don't necessarily to, think it's bad. I wouldn't say it was terrible, but it's it doesn't really to, move me. Two hundred million or people or so disagree with you. Well, <laughs> Possibly, luckily, but luckily the other judge is older than you, so um, <laughs> that works out really well. The, um, I mean, I I think I think there's a, there's a similarity here with Dusty Springfield. I think she's a survivor. I think she's really tough. And I think she's going to, I think she's, I mean, you know, you can't judge now, you know, she's, it, it, it's in 30 years time, I think she'll probably still be around and she'll probably be moving. I mean, you know, she started off limited amount. I know she started off in, in country, which I really like that stuff. And then she moved in other direction. So she'll probably keep moving. And she's, she's got a lot of, you know, she, she clearly is tough. And also she's, I quite like, there's one of her songs called Mean which a lot of her songs seem to be sort of, sort of almost socially um, on a social quest to make people behave better. And I quite, I, I quite like that. I quite like a sort of, you know, there's so much polarization now and nasty behavior and, and um, you know, we're all so quick to just to shout each other down. And she seems to be on a quest to sort of make people a little bit nicer. And I find that quite, quite sweet actually. And um, I mean, I I, I did listen, all those that told me to listen to tracks earlier, I did listen to them all. And I didn't like, Lockie, the one you sent me, but I thought that was being a bit harsh. So I did listen to some of her other ones. But I did like a track called Style. I don't know if you're, you're aware of that one. Yeah, I thought that was pretty yeah, good. I do. Yeah, yeah. I like if she can laugh at herself as well. Right, okay, Holmes's education continues. I'm going to go to Beth next. <laughs> there, have, there have been some really great entrants this evening, everyone. Um I've really enjoyed listening to all your pitches so far. It really is going to be a tough one for the judges. Um, but for me, 
the us here in the room, I think those wishing to be considered for the greatest musician, according to History Hack, must fall into three categories. One, their work must be instantly recognisable. Two, their work has had to have a lasting, lasting impact in their field. And three, be universally acknowledged for their work, either through notoriety, accolades or both. And boy, does mine fit firmly in all three of those categories, because my choice for the greatest musician is the mighty John Williams. Bravo me. Um, very, very brief rundown of who he is. So he's born in 1932 in New York um, before he eventually moved to Los Angeles as a child, showed a very early aptitude for music, studied composition at Juilliard, um, returned to Los Angeles where he undertook work playing the piano firstly for big Hollywood films, including Leonard Bernstein's West Side Story. He was also composing pieces for film and television, including the 1969 Goodbye Mr. Chips and the 1971 film adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof. But all this is leading up to a specific point in his life. This is leading up to 1977, when John Williams would find himself firmly on the world stage. I don't think it can be argued that the piece that catapulted Williams to fame is also his most well-known, and that is, of course, Star Wars. Um, it's been observed by many film and film music critics just how bizarre it was to hire John Williams for the role of composing the soundtrack of Star Wars at that time in Hollywood. While George Lucas was conjuring up his what would become nine film extra masterpieces, so on and so forth, Williams was re-establishing the use of symphonies and orchestras as a central piece of a musical score when the major studios at that time had stopped using orchestral musicians for their scores. The Star Wars soundtrack exploded into the popular culture and really hit home across the world. It sold so many copies that it set the pace for the selling of film soundtracks as a lucrative and very lucrative for some films asset and changed how merchandising was viewed as an additional source of income to the film industry. And he did step outside of the box composing like the Star Wars in the 70s. Many in his industry have noted that he changed with this film, the relationship between movies and their music. While once a score would have been hidden in the background of the film, it is now a featured part of the production. Many in the film industry have copied this method and I've included this next bit pur purposely for Alex after having this conversation with her yesterday. Many have copied this method, including composers like Hans Zimmer, whose own orchestral pieces are insanely good. I will add that. I do like that when he was asked about the fact that he was following in Williams's Superman footsteps by composing for Man of Steel, Zimmer simply said, let's just declare the truth here. There is nobody better than John Williams. An important aspect of John Williams' work is the ability to build up themes, not just for the characters, but for storylines as well. Whether it's subtle or dramatic and in your face, most of the major characters in any film the composer works on will have a musical theme of their own. Looking at Star Wars, for example, you've got immediately Imperial, no, the Death March that it's instantly recognisable for Darth Vader and the Empire. I mean, come on, it's it's such an iconic piece of music that dum, 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 like everyone knows what that is without ever having to see Star Wars. You know who that is for and what that is designed to do. And I can imagine there are certainly some people in this room and 
bless him, he's not here, but Chris Sams, can you just imagine Chris Sams hearing that piece of music, donning a black cape, a Darth Vader mask, and just wanting to destroy all of his enemies? Because that is what that piece of music can do. You just want to sit there and just go, yes, I'm going to conquer everyone and destroy them all. And I think, um, you know, Holmes may have thought that way as well. We all know about Holmes's love for Star Wars. Who knows? Um, but aside from the endless pieces of work that he's done for Star Wars that have come to populate the galaxy far, far away. Um, Williams is also responsible for several other iconic scores. Indeed, it's very difficult to look at cinema history without coming across him in the credits. Star Wars, Schindler's List, Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, E.T., Indiana Jones, Jaws, Superman. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And all of these films have scores we can instantly recognise and tell you where it's from. Try to imagine each of those films without their music. It simply isn't possible. And although John Williams is bidding farewell to some of these major projects as he heads towards retirement age, he will be a difficult person to replace for these projects, the ones that are continuing anyway. And a huge reason for that is the strength of his key thematic pieces, his hero pieces in some of the films. Major musical moments, are the most important aspect for any score. Adventurous and exciting pieces of music that accompany generally a fast-paced and or heroic moment from the lead character. You've got the terrifying appearance of Jaws's fin or the boulder chasing down Indiana Jones or the first glimpse of a Brachiosaurus in Jurassic Park. Would they have imprinted on a generation without his auditory assistance? No one does these themes better than John Williams. There's one keyword that is also usually mentioned when talking about movie music, and that's emotion. The word has a lot of weight to it. The emotions of the character in a piece have to be conveyed, not just through their performance, but through the music that accompanies it. And if there is one piece by John Williams that screams emotional, evocative work that is instantly recognizable, it's the Schindler's List theme. The power of the single violin playing the piece is so, it's just playing that melody. It gives me the chills just thinking about it. It's Zach Perlman who played in the original recording noted how historically accurate the piece was when comparing it to Jewish music from Central Europe of that time period. And that the level of research and hard work that Williams must have done to put into this piece. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Makes it truly great. It is a masterpiece in melodical composition and shows the power that a simple, stripped-back piece can have on a film. You don't always need the big, bold brass sound. Sometimes you can finesse it really, really beautifully. Music really is a language. It is a language for the ears. We listen to it and we enjoy it. And whilst a movie will translate something for the audience visually, the score will continue to build that message through sound. And Williams is an expert at creating whole worlds for, for franchises, especially to play in with distinct and diverse scores. Perfect example of this is the Harry Potter franchise. 
The sound of Hogwarts, the themes of the movie themselves were first developed by Williams. The music composed for the first time we see Diagon Alley or Christmas at Hogwarts is distinctly different to that of the Devil's Snare and the first encounter with Voldemort. While other composers have then, yes, taken these scores and run with them, his notes and his sounds have carried through all eight of the films. He has, his abilities have meant that he could support this fictional landscape even without necessarily being there. And personally for me, first time I ever heard the Harry Potter film, the Harry Potter theme in the first film, I just turned eight years old, was a completely magical experience. I felt like I literally had been thrown into a world of magic, spells, moving staircases and games of Quidditch. And I still get the chills and my ears immediately prick up as soon as I hear, hear it being played because I recognise that music so much and it holds so many good memories for me. The greatest musician in history does not have a simple answer as has been raised already this evening, mainly because we all have different tastes and those tastes influence how we perceived what is great and what is not. However, there is one thing we can all agree on. Music is a powerful tool that can bring us immense joy, sorrow, humour and many other emotions. And not many people can say they have brought such emotions to audiences across the world. But John Williams is one of those people. And that just shows purely in a very physical form in his extensive accolades. He's won 25 Grammys, seven BAFTAs, five Oscars, and four Golden Globes, with a total of 52 Oscars nominations in total, which makes him the second most nominated person, only after Walt Disney. In 2005, the American Film Institute selected the score to Star Wars as the greatest film score of all time. The Library of Congress has also entered Star Wars soundtrack into the National Recording Registry for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. He was inducted into Hollywood Bowls Hall of Fame in 2000 and received a Kennedy Center honor in 2004. He received a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2016 from the American Film Institute, which was the first to be awarded outside of acting and directing fields. He's composed the score for nine of the top 25 highest grossing films at the US box office adjusted for inflation and always features heavily, as a little side note, in the classic FM Movie Music Hall of Fame, where in 2020 he had 15 in the top 100, three in the top 10, with Schindler's List taking number one spot. He has influenced generations of music fans, orchestral fans and film fans. And with projects still continuing well into his 90s, it is very clear he doesn't plan on stopping anytime soon. He's paved the way for the great composers of today, with many of those stating how much of an influence he has had on their own work. John Williams is a musical icon. He's king of the nerds across many, genera many generations and a legend in the true sense of the word and fully deserving of the title of greatest musician. <clears throat> okay, right, hold my drink, you've had your say. I tell you now that the last Oscar he won was in 1994 and he may as well have retired then because the only piece of iconic music he's done in the last 30 years is the Harry Potter theme tune. I think he's great. I don't think he's the greatest musician ever. I don't think, see what Josh thinks. Josh can go first this time. I don't think it's a positive that you know a piece of music is John Williams in every film without being told. I would argue that Hans Zimmer is better because there's more variation in one soundtrack, i.e. Gladiator, than there has been in the last 20 years of John Williams' music. Just because you, you hit upon one brilliant formula 
Because let's not lie, you can merge Superman into Star Wars, into Indiana Jones, and they can be one piece of music. Just because you've done one formula that works with one director doesn't make you the greatest musician ever. It means you were very, very good at something, but it, it doesn't, the diversity just isn't there for me. Josh, what do you think? Well, Hans Zimmer did the theme tune for Going for Gold. <laughs> the um, But actually, the, the, no, there is a point here. The, the um, film music... Obviously, it's so difficult. How can you judge? But film music, it doesn't stand on its own. It, it has the, you know, it becomes iconic through association and through help. I mean, obviously, it can stand on its own. But I mean, it, you know, it, it comes to our attention through another medium. And so to call someone who's become famous through that the best musician of all time is sort of not really a level playing field. And I, I mean, I love his stuff and a lot of his stuff, but I can't. I guess I see what you're saying. So if you strip Star Wars out of that music, is it one of the greatest pieces of music? It may be. I'm not saying it isn't. But the mm. fact is, it's come to our attention through this other medium. And, and it's not quite the same as, as you know, Dusty Springfield or, or Taylor Swift or Shostakovich. They're, they're all to, in, the same, in the same camp for once. And, and I, I just have a slight difficulty with, with, you know, things that I associate with films. I guess, yeah, if you've got a 200 million pound music video behind your bit of music, it isn't quite a level playing field. I don't know. I, don't know. I mean, I, I, yeah, I've got to be careful here. I, I love his stuff, but um, I can't put him up there with the others. I don't think. I think about someone like um, Bryce Hayashi. Um, so he was 13 and in 2016, he took a trumpet and he went and stood outside John Williams' house and he played the intro to the Star Wars movie. He played the Star Wars theme. And Williams came out and shook his hand. And if that inspires kids to pick up a musical instrument and play, does it matter that it was in a film? I would argue it doesn't. Yeah, Anything that yeah. inspires the next generation should be applauded. True. But Holmes, does that mean he's the greatest musician in the world or just does it mean he's the greatest film composer? I don't know. I'm kind of conflicted because I sort of agree with Beth and I agree with Josh and I agree with you as well. And it's trying to pick it out of that. I think um, I think without doubt, I think, you know, with one or two exceptions, the fact that everybody, you know, he's the only film composer that everyone pretty much knows when they hear a track that he was a composer. You might get the odd exception like Good and the Bad and the Ugly by Morricone and things like that, which are the odd exception. But I don't think there's anything to that extent. He's... You know, I, I think film music gets a bit of an unfair rap as well because it's, you know, it's as equally complicated as classical mm -hmm. music. And most of it is classical music, yeah. It's always... You found a bit as... research, didn't you? There was some real snobbery with classical composers about yeah. talking about film composers. Yeah, I, I, I had a piece... I didn't put it in because Alex scared me. We're Told talking... us he wasn't allowed to do a 25-minute pitch. <laughs> I could have gone on, but he was he was basically a professor at Juilliard who really, really didn't rate film composition. And John Williams came into, I can't remember the exact wording because obviously I've got rid of it, but John, were, John Williams came in and they were like assessing a film score and this professor wanted there to be a piano there and there was no piano and John Williams said, don't worry about it. And he starts repeating the base of the track back to this professor. And by the end of the film, he can recite this whole score of this film mm. and sing it off his own back with perfect tempo, only having watched it once because he has that deep understanding of the music. Mm. I just, for me, the problem I have with John Williams is that, so if you look at Hans Zimmer, 
and you look at the stuff he was doing, say, in about 2000, go from one film to the next and they're not remotely alike. I think if a composer, I think he starts from zero. So he started Gladiator um, either just before or just after he did Pirates of the Caribbean, which are two massively different scores. Um, and he started from zero for both of them. So he started from zero with Gladiator. He worked with um, North African instruments. He it just It was built around the individual film. Whereas for me, John Williams never starts from zero. He starts from what worked last time and just adapts it a bit. That's what I feel like when I listen to some of his stuff. There is a formula that has worked brilliantly since the late 70s for him. And that is the basis of everything he does. And that's why I just don't think he pushes himself like some of the younger composers. I mean, another one is James Horner. You can always tell James Horner because there's always too much fucking piano going on in the background because it's him playing the piano. But I just feel like he didn't push himself like some of the others charlie you're a film nerd i am i think i i really like john williams um Mm -hmm. i do i take your point that you you know that it's him very very instantly and i also get the frustration which is something i absolutely hate which is the name a film composer you ask any moron in the street and it's going to be john williams and they'll say he's the best it's like if you ask people, name a guitarist, they'll name someone who I think is shit and they will tell you is the best guitarist ever because he's the only one they can name. Um, John Williams, he takes inspiration from a lot of places, which I think is very clever. So he doesn't start from zero. The Home Alone soundtrack was all a pastiche of Nutcracker and it's really clever if you hear them side by side. It's absolutely brilliant. So I think there is a lot to be said for him. I don't think he's the best film composer ever but I think he is so instantly recognizable and that is I think that is a plus point I don't think it's a bad point um and I hope that in 30 odd years we we're talking about Johnny Greenwood in the same way because I love him I think he's brilliant so that's my filmy nerdy bit nerdy bit over <laughs> peace peace out yeah, I think a the one, one. The one for me where he did start from nothing um was Shinder's list mm. That doesn't have any of his usual tropes. Zach's nodding and shaking his head repeatedly. Well, that's the thing about Schindler's List. Uh, when Spielberg approached him about doing Schindler's List, Schindler's, uh, William said, you need a better composer than me. And Spielberg said, yes, but they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> Zach. Yeah, I can't pretend I've got, you know, kind of intelligent things to offer on this, but I... I feel both of these. Yes, Williams is instantly recognisable and I completely take what Beth says about bringing the orchestral element back into it. That has then been picked up and taken much further forward by, as you're saying, Alex, you know, um, Hans Zimmer obviously springs to mind as the person sort of dominant now, um, potentially to be taken forward by the likes of people like Brian Tyler, who's kind of diversified and done a whole lot of sporting themes, you know, the F1 theme, the US Open theme. So I guess it's, as somebody was saying earlier, I think it was Lockie who was kind of saying, you know, part of the issue is the point at which we're measuring this. And 50 years from now, when we've got a straight fight between the collected works of Hans Zimmer and the collected works of John Williams, who's going to win out? I I don't it, know. It is a tricky one. I mean, if, if I was going to be critical, I mean, uh, the, theme, the themes for his characters, which is a really strong point, and Beth made that point, but I think where his soundtracks fall down sometimes is the bit that aren't using those themes. They can be quite yeah. uninspiring. Um, 
you know, if I'm right, generally stuff, on a John Williams soundtrack, two stand out brilliant bits of music. So Schindler's List, it's a theme from Schindler's List, and it's I could have done more. The bit from the end where he breaks down at the railway line. The rest of it, I can't tell you the name of one bit of music for the whole. And, and the stuff he's done, re- I mean, the stuff he did for the last Star Wars stuff was pretty unmemorable as well. But he's doing the Obi the Obi Wan Kenobi thing that's coming soon. Maybe that'll do. It. I mean, it's a really strong shout, and I think because it's so strong, we've been hypercritical compared to we have been to others. But you know, I think it's still a contender and a very strong, you know, a very strong one at that. So what I've done is teed this up for two modern greats um and kate and charlie having a slanging match basically uh charlie you can go first oh okay well don't I'm mention not... the first album right <laughs> oh no well, i love the first i love the early stuff i absolutely love the early stuff i i put off writing this for so long so i sat down and wrote it this afternoon um i knew that this evening was going to be difficult not because I don't think I've picked a winner, because obviously I do. Not just because I know that judging can only ever be completely subjective and that what turns me on might not necessarily be what floats your boat. But because more than anything else, more than anything I can enthuse about, more than anything that sparks my passion, there is no shorthand to my soul more perfect than I'm a fan of David Bowie. So here it is laid bare for you. It may come as a shock to you to learn that I was a bit of an oddball at school. I know know, it's hard to believe. I was the kid who practically gave herself a hunchback carrying around a school bag full of cassette tapes, music magazines, spare batteries for her Walkman and a notebook full of teenage angst. My parents encouraged me to listen to music and my early teens were soundtracked by The Beatles, The Doors, Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin and Britpop. I didn't discover David Bowie until I was 17 and it was like the world at once shrunk down to the size of my bedroom and expanded, exploding in limitless possibility. To all the freaks, the kooks, the strange, David Bowie screamed, you're not alone. He was subversive. Suddenly he was making me not feel like an odd person. Depeche Mode's Dave Gahan reminisced when talking to Bowie, um, talking about listening to Bowie in his teens to Forbes magazine. Vinyl was cheap in 1999. It was brilliant. I bought every album I could get hold of. David Bowie wasn't beloved of my parents. He was mine. Later, when I would meet other people who had even heard of David Bowie and who loved him too, it was like finding my tribe. I assumed I was the only person listening, the only person he was singing to. Sharing him was difficult at first, and having met some pretty hardcore fans who make me look like a part-timer, I know that I'm not the only one who guards him jealously like a secret. As I experienced Bowie through these collected albums from record fairs and charity shops, something struck me. This Bowie was not the same as that Bowie. To the casual observer, Bowie equals Ziggy Stardust, that bastion of early 70s glam rock, a glittered androgynous alien, a man who fell to earth only to destroy himself with rock and roll excess. Well, Bowie killed Ziggy. He killed his creation off live on stage in July 1973 when Clive was taking his O-levels. 
If you hear his drummer talk about it today, he'll tell you that when Bowie announced that this was the last show we'll ever do to the screams of distraught teenagers, it was the first the band had heard of it. David Bowie could have been Ziggy Stardust until the day he died, and no one would have thought the less of him. He'd tried for years to make it as a successful musician. Ziggy was his fifth studio album, and he'd been in something like nine bands in 11 years before going solo even. He didn't want to be the same. And so begins the chameleon-like changes that Bowie would go through as an artist. Now, he was prolific, so I'm not going to list his albums in full. You can all just piss off and listen to them on Spotify. He released one or two a year in the 70s, but less than three years after Ziggy, he released Young Americans. Blue-eyed soul, he called it. He would go to Berlin and record experimental ambient tracks alongside Heroes in a trilogy of albums recorded by The Wall. As a result of this desire, this artistic need to change, there is a Bowie for every mood, for every occasion. Want industrial metal? Outside. Want folk? David Bowie self-titled. Want reggae? Though why the fuck would you? Tonight. Want to fall in love? Cry? Laugh? Dance? Fuck? There's a Bowie for that. The body of work that Bowie has left spans 50 years and 30 studio albums, and they don't all sound the same. Bowie doesn't even sing the same with the same voice from track to track on an album. A friend of mine, Dr. Leah Cardos, has studied this extensively and catalogued all of Bowie's performances on the most epic Excel spreadsheet that I've ever seen. Sometimes he sings like a balladeer, that famous Bowie sound, you know, that, oh, which I love doing. Sometimes he trills into musical theatre territory. Sometimes he sings like a Londoner, said the laughing gnome. And then his voice naturally changes and deepens with age and Marlborough Red. Don't smoke, kids. Really, don't smoke. David Bowie is a window into new worlds, to new sounds, new art, new literature, all filtered through the prism of his creativity. I don't listen to a lot of drum and bass, but that sound is exactly what Bowie uses on his Earthling album. It's one of my favourites for running these days, where once it was a favourite for annoying my parents. They say that great artists steal, and Bowie used the things that influenced and inspired him without shame or hesitation, because in using these things in conjunction with other thoughts and other influences, something entirely unique results from that. Creative paralysis comes from worrying unnecessarily, unnecessarily when there are only so many ways to say I love you and only a dozen or so notes to do it with. Bowie would in turn influence a new wave of musicians over and over again. Notably, the new romantics of the early 80s cited Bowie as their main influence. They all wanted to be David Bowie. Bowie thought that what they were doing at the Blitz was cool. So he reached out to Steve Strange recorded the greatest new romantic track ever, Ashes to Ashes, and asked some of the Blitz kids to appear in the music video. In and out, influences coming and going throughout Bowie's work. When he got bored, he blew it all up. He never stuck. In the late 80s, he started to feel trapped. After the high production value Glass Spider tour was slated by the critics, who'd been gearing up to kick him down for years after Labyrinth, Tonight, Dancing in the Street, Bowie jacked it all in and started a rock band, Tin Machine, in which he was the front man. It wasn't David Bowie and Tin Machine. He didn't want to be that guy for a while. The chameleon changed its style again and hid away. I say this to illustrate that even when Bowie fell out of love with his music, 
He did not fall out of love with making music. He switched it up and he changed and he changed again and we're all the richer for it. Unconstrained by a band, he knew how to collaborate and was ruthless in shedding his skin to change his sound. Mick Ronson brought his rock and roll and had to go before the dawn of the blue-eyed soul. Producer Tony Visconti came and went and came again. Nile Rogers made him funky and gave us songs to put on our red shoes and dance to. He worked with Iggy Pop, Lou Reed, Tina Turner and the Pet Shop Boys. He kept producing until the day he died and his final album Black Star remains one of the most incredible achievements of his career. It's death art. Sure, you can look at Bowie's back catalogue and speculate that he'd been dying since 1971, but Black Star was different. It was classy. It was a goodbye without saying goodbye. In fact, part of me is still convinced he will come back, that he'd like to come and meet us all, but he thinks he'd blow our mind. For living out his life until the end in his music, for leaving us a soundtrack to every possible aspect of our lives, for all the comfort that is offered to those who feel like they don't quite fit in or who were born right out of their times, for being every voice that you could ever need to hear coming out of your stereo on high or quietly in your earphones, David Bowie was and is history's greatest musician. Not one thing, but a multitude. Performer, singer, songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, multi-award winning, acclaimed, loved, missed and never, ever gone. Oh, well done. I wonder if Kate's quaking in her boots. Josh. There's a theme developing amongst some of these, and that is people who change and survive and shift their, I mean, and nobody did it more than, I mean, you know, he started as a sort of Anthony Newley impersonator. And then, uh, you know, to go up to to Tin Machine and Black, it is sort of amazing. I mean, it's all, there's almost, I don't know, there's all, there's something sort of really weird about someone who's able to do that, Re- you know, really unworldly and sort of odd about someone who's able to, <laughs> unable to sort of pin the, or don't pin their personality to something and just shift it a wholly completely over time, which I find really unnerving. But I mean, brilliant. But um, and and also that Paxman interview that he did. Yes, they wheel out all the time because it is amazing. I mean, he has predicted the, the fucking future. Um, and Paxman saying, but it's, you know, it's 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 just a method, a delivery method. And he's saying, no, no, it's much more than that. And he was right. And um, he said musicians needed to get ready to tour because it was going to be the only unique product they had to sell. And by God, was he right? And you know, if people don't want to pay for music, they only want to see a show. So you're not going to get another David Bowie because he was allowed to fail so much in his early career. That just doesn't happen now. It was horrible to Gary Newman. I like Gary Newman. I I really I think Gary Newman met him at a very and he he had, he'll tell you the same thing. He met him on a just a bad day at a bad time. But that's not the day to meet your hero. I re, I do feel for him. I mean, you know, in a way, it's, this all comes down to you know you, you can't argue that Dusty Springfield was you know had more influence or greater than Bowie. But in some ways, for me. You know, it, it means more to me. So I don't know. I'm going to shut up. <laughs> no, don't. You don't have to. <laughs> Holmes. Yeah, it's a tough one for me because I've not really listened to that much. That's not to say I don't like what I've listened to. But I mean, when I started getting into music and buying records and stuff, that was about, that was during his sort of China girl, let's dance mm. type 
era, which I like, which I like those songs now better than I did at the time, really. They yeah. seem quite generic at the time. But I mean, there's no one denying his his influence. I mean, I've got I've, all I've got is his like three disc greatest hits thing. And the only other album I've got is um, Space Oddity. But my favourite song on that is Memory of a Free Festival, which is brilliant. And it's completely so unlike anything else on the album, you know, that you would associate with him. It's brilliant. Um, and the stuff I do listen to, like the track you said today, I loved it. And maybe, you know, the takeaway from this was I should I should dabble a bit more, really. And obviously, Hello Space Boy, the Pet Shop Boys collaboration. Love it. Yeah, it's a tune. It's yeah. a banger. Okay. Um, I do. I love Bowie and I love Charlie, but I think my heart is just about with, well, no, it is with Kate. Kate, go for it. Thank you. Um, yeah, so sadly, I'm not nearly as eloquent as Charlie, and I don't have time to replay Queen's set from Live Aid. Copyright, <laughs> copyright won't allow me to play Bohemian Rhapsody in its glorious six-minute entirety, but I will do my best to do my choice credit and stay within the time limit, if I can. Freddie Mercury defied logic and reason, pushed boundaries and tested limits. He inspired and influenced. In his own words, he wasn't a rock star. He's a legend. But he was humble. At boarding school near Bombay in the 50s, he was in the choir and he said, I just like to sing. I'd copy Elvis songs. Then I suddenly realised that I could actually write songs and make my own music. Call it a natural gift or whatever. He went on to write one of the most startlingly original and unconventional musical pieces in history. A song everybody's heard, but like nothing anybody's ever heard before. Bohemian Rhapsody changed the face of music and opened up endless possibilities for musicians of the future. It's a musical experience, a rock and roll record with the scale of opera, the pace of a Greek tragedy, the wit of Shakespeare and the unbridled joy of musical theatre. Like much of Freddie's other work, it's hugely complex, non-cyclical in structure, comprising dozens of chords, and Freddie had it all planned out in his head before he even went into the studio. Music executives said the record was too long. I pity their partners if six minutes is too long. And they refused to release it, so Freddie took it to pal Kenny Everett, who also doubted that any station would play it. But after hearing the song, he exclaimed, forget it, it's going to be a number one for centuries. He played it at least 14 times in two days and there was such huge demand from the public that it was released, selling more than a million copies in the first six months. It was the most streamed song of the 20th century and the only song ever to reach UK Christmas number one twice by the same artist. Nearly 50 years later, we still can't stop listening to Bohemian Rhapsody. It's one of the most influential and memorable songs ever written although calling it a song is a bit of a misnomer. Part lullaby, part heavy metal, it's actually several songs. A cappella, ballad, opera, hard rock, and finally a reflective coda. Freddie's versatility can be seen not only in Bohemian Rhapsody, but in the huge range of genres he wrote other songs in. I don't think there's a style he couldn't do. Heavy metal, gospel, disco, operatic. His songs range from sentimental ballads, such as Love of My Life, through rock of every type imaginable, to songs like Stone Cold Crazy, which Q magazine called thrash metal before thrash metal existed, Freddie gave bands such as Slayer and Anthrax their genre. Other bands and singers who've cited Freddie as one of their greatest inspirations include Guns N' Roses, Metallica, Lady Gaga, Panic at the Disco, The Killers, The Darkness, Katy Perry, Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana. But Freddie was modest. When asked if he was the leader of Queen, he said no, just the singer. 
He was equally humble about his skill with musical instruments, but Brian May said he had a wonderful touch on the piano, incredible rhythm, passion and feeling, and he was extremely good on the guitar too. Self-taught, very unorthodox, all downstrokes. Most people play with up and downstrokes. He played rhythm on Crazy Little Thing Called Love. Brian May, the man who stood on top of Buckingham Palace and played the national anthem, said he wished he sounded as good as Freddie did on that record. When asked about Crazy Little Thing Called Love, Freddie said, my voice does sound a bit like Elvis Presley's. It wasn't something I was trying to do. It was pure coincidence. I don't mind telling you, my girlfriend thought it was a cover, but that's absolutely not true. I wrote it while taking a bath. It took him less than 10 minutes, apparently. As people have mentioned, our debate is subjective, a matter of opinion and taste. However, there is actual scientific proof that Freddie Mercury is the best singer of all time. A team of researchers found he was unique in that he could modulate his voice significantly faster than other rock stars and even professional classical singers. There was stuff going on in Freddie's vocal cords that even Pavarotti himself couldn't manage. But how did the greatest frontman of all time rival the singing power of most opera stars? The study discovered that he employed something usually unique to Tuvan throat singers, whatever they are. The fact that this untrained rock vocalist was using subharmonics is pretty incredible. There's a lot of scientific and analytical musical terminology in the full study. If anyone's interested in reading it, inbox me, I'll send you the link. Roger Daltrey, lead singer of The Who, said he could sing anything in any style. He could change his style from line to line, and that's an art, and he was brilliant at it. Freddie's roadie said it wasn't just about his voice, but the way he commanded the stage, all about interacting with the audience, knowing how to get them on his side. And he gave everything in every show. The former Farouk Bulsara was an intensely physical performer who owned every inch of the stage. In front of tens of thousands of fans all across the world, the intrinsically shy and private man lost all trace of self-consciousness. Freddie Mercury with Queen showed us how to be a stadium rock band. And it wasn't only with Queen that Freddie flourished. He also wrote and released solo work. His album, Mr. Bad Guy, went gold. And then there were collaborations. David Bowie, who co-wrote Under Pressure during a drunken jam session, by his own words, was in awe of Freddie. He said, of all the more theatrical performers, Freddie took it further than the rest of us. He took it all the way over the edge. I only saw him in concert once, and he was definitely a man who could hold an audience in the palm of his hand. There were very few people who could keep up with Freddie. Bowie managed it once in one style, but he'd never have carried songs such as Barcelona. Of all the people in the world Montserrat Cavalli could have chosen, she asked Freddie to join her in producing a song for the 92 Olympics. Excited at the prospect of working with someone he so admired, Freddie promptly wrote Barcelona. Montserrat, equally excited to be working with someone she considered such an enormous talent, suggested an album, which Freddie duly wrote. Time restrictions meant little opportunity to rehearse together. Freddie's vocal range and skill was such that he sang both parts, sending her the recording so she could learn the songs. Montserrat believed that if Freddie had lived, he would have delved more deeply into the classical music that increasingly captivated him. Freddie wrote much of the soundtrack for the film Flash Gordon, one of the earliest high-budget feature films to use a score primarily performed by a rock band. He also wrote several songs for Highlander, both the film and the TV series. Freddie's music has also been used in numerous other films and TV series. Shaun of the Dead, Wayne's World, Moulin Rouge, Cruella, Suicide Squad, Secret Life of Pets, Family Guy and Ted, among others. 
Speaking of film scores, had I not been able to pitch Freddie, who incidentally ticks all three of your boxes, Beth, and I'm sorry for what I'm about to do, I'd have chosen Enya Morricone. But I have to ask, were it not for the scriptwriters, actors, directors, and so on, were it not for their vision, would the likes of Enya Morricone and John Williams have even written these legendary songs? Freddie's music was born from an intrinsic need and desire to create music. The wealth and fame were fringe benefits. He would have created these incredible songs even if no one was listening. Can we say the same for John Williams? Two of Freddie's songs, We're the Champions and Bohemian Rhapsody, have each been voted as the greatest song of all time in major polls. Both songs have been inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame and the video for Bohemian Rhapsody was voted the greatest of all time by readers of Q magazine. And it's not just one or two great songs either. Freddie's written well over 70 songs and sold over 200 million records. In 2003, he was posthumously inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And in 2005, he was awarded an Ivan Novello. He stopped endless polls and surveys. The last song Freddie recorded in full was the aptly titled The Show Must Go On. The band didn't discuss the meaning of the song, though it was obvious it gave voice to the feelings that Freddie's valiant fight against AIDS created in them all, even Freddie. Lines like, I'll face it with a grin, I'm never giving in, I'll have, I have to find the will to carry on, reflected Freddie's determination to keep making music, even as his health faded. When it came to recording, Brian expressed concerns about whether Freddie would manage, he'd become so weak. Freddie's response? Don't worry, I'll fucking nail it, darling. He downed his vodka, propped himself against the mixing desk, and true to his word, he absolutely nailed it. In one take, he delivered one of the most extraordinary performances of his life, conquering so much to deliver some of his finest work. As the first major rock star to die of AIDS, Freddie's death represented an important event in the history of the disease, increasing awareness and research in a massive way. A few months after his death, the Mercury Phoenix Trust was founded and the Freddie Mercury Tribute Concert for AIDS Awareness was held, celebrating his life and raising money for AIDS research. At the concert, Elizabeth Taylor spoke of Freddie as an extraordinary rock star who rushed across our cultural landscape like a comet shooting across the sky. The Mercury Phoenix Trust has since raised many millions of pounds for AIDS charities. All of this money is raised because of how inspired people were and continue to be. And this is just another part of why Freddie's so great. It's more than just music. His music ability and legacy has affected so many people from so many walks of life in so many ways. In 1991, days before Freddie died, Jim Beach visited him. He'd stopped taking his meds and was bedridden, blind and in a really bad way. Yet all he really wanted to talk about was his music. More than 30 years after his untimely death, Freddie Mercury is still exerting enough magnetism to reel in new fans who are too young to remember him firsthand. His voice alone was an instrument like few, if any other, possessed before or since, as was his talent as a songwriter and on both the piano and the guitar. But it's not just that which makes him the greatest musician of all time, nor is it his whiplash-inducing versatility, his songwriting genius, not his incredible presence and vocal warm-ups on stage, nor his ability to captivate audiences of record-breaking capacity. It's his vision his ability to dream up and bring to life completely new, never-before-imagined ideas. It's not just his musical ability either. The AIDS awareness and charity work in his memory is what he did to create endless possibilities for musicians of the future. How much music since Freddie would not have existed if it wasn't for Freddie? Freddie showed us all, not just musicians, to believe in ourselves and trust in our beliefs. And that's why I think he's the greatest musician ever. 
Yay! And I am 100% completely sold. You know what? Not even the show must go on. I defy anyone to listen to Too Much Love Will Kill You and not bawl their eyes out, knowing what was oh. going on at the time. He yeah. was in that. Um, he is epic. And I'll just tell you now that Bertie, the cat, runs and hides under the bed if he hears Axel Rose's voice. Freddie, he will sit and watch that Live Aid set or the whole of the 1986 Live at Wembley footage without even moving and that's a cat who's supposed to have a two minute attention with his little ears twitching uh and i even have a picture of him hugging a little pop vinyl figure of freddie mercury as well my cat votes with you kate josh where do you do you vote for freddie i'm the right age i mean i so so two he is two of the biggest iconic i mean you know live aid i was 15 and you know, it, it just stands out completely. That performance was astounding, absolutely astounding. Uh, uh, it's not something you can forget. At, at a time when every, when people were watching, everyone watched it. Everyone watched it. You know, yeah. My friend Charlie worked on it. He was backstage. I mean, so, so there was that. And then also when he was ill and when you, you know, everyone simultaneously guessed he was dying and, and, um, Show must go on, and who wants to live forever? I remember that as well. Being yeah, that, that really. Um, so he absolutely and another love. Uh, uh, he, I mean, that magnetism and the showmanship and the voice. So he was. I have a problem with the rest of the band. I can't. I don't like Queen. I'm not <laughs> pitching Queen. I'm pitching Freddie. I, I mean, know, I love Queen, but, it's, but you, I'm pitching you, Freddie. You I'm not. Play, you can't separate him. From that horrible drama and the and Brian May on the roof of, I mean, <laughs> oh that that squealy guitar. I mean, I'm not a Queen fan, and sometimes, but I don't mind the odd track. And then all of a sudden, Brian May comes in and fucking ruins it. <laughs> Does he not what's tune he, it before he? Does drama? he not tune it before he's always he so angry? What's he got to be angry about? He's had the, the badgers. He has to be angry about the badgers. <laughs> <laughs> See, it does make it annoys me. Bitter. What's he, the level he of commercialness doing? about them since Freddie died, I don't like. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I mean, I'm I'm being facetious, but I'm not really. I mean, uh, you know, I think he's absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, um, and but I he he is for me. He's dragged down by very talented but quite obnoxious people. <laughs> you know what? My mum made tea for Freddie. She made tea for all of them actually. And to my knowledge, Brian May wasn't horrible to her, but she worked for their accountants. Um, and they came in to do some boring adulting stuff um, and she was asked to make them tea. And when she went in to ask them all what um, would they like milk and sugar, they were all very, very nice. Oh, I want to be your mum. Oh, you know. And also the film bothered me. It was the propaganda of that film. Mm. Um, it really, you know, I, we know, who, you know, you don't have to rewrite history to show us what Queen was. We, we, this is, we, we saw this, yeah, it I mean, this one. is why... This is why I've tried to stick with kind of Freddie and Freddie's musical talent, because the film actually isn't anything to do with Freddie's musical talent. And the fact that he could carry a band that perhaps weren't all that or certainly wouldn't have been all that without him um, speaks realm, like rings for his his um, his ability, I think. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think as regards the film, you know, they wouldn't have got they wouldn't have got permission to use the tracks if it wasn't anything less than positive. Yeah, yeah but they, they wanted to, to tell their story in the most glowing fashion. I mean, they, they would, you know. 
I think we can all agree that the Elton John film was far more offensive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. Close. I mean, I, I'm not a massive fan of Queen, really. I don't mind. I think, I think the issue with Freddie is that it's probably more with judging him as a showman, as which he was very good. We mentioned the Live Aid performance, for example. I noticed, I did a quick bit of Googling when you were speaking, I noticed his solo album that he released in 1985 basically died on its arse. So I don't know if that's a... Um, it, I mean, went, it, it went gold. It did go <laughs> gold. Brilliant. It did go gold. But that's three, that's 300,000 copies and a kind of magic released by Queen a year later sold 2 million. And if you look at the third, fourth and fifth singles, they struggled to break into the top 50. Very in mind, yeah. he was quite big then. So, you know... Maybe you know he's he's you know he's better being the sum of the parts of Queen and not so good on his own. I mean, as a showman, he he was undoubtedly had talent, but a lot of Queen stuff I can take it or leave it. Unfortunately, um, what I will say is I will reply with my pitch, which essentially <laughs> is just to prove that actually you're saying is he just a showman what more makes the greatest musician in history is it not about being a showman is it not being a performer or is it about front and bullshit ladies and gentlemen i give you robbie fucking williams (laughs) robbie williams right who has tortured us with shit like rock dj and owns a mansion as a result who has meant that every wannabe karaoke twat in the world gets on a microphone and tries to sing Angels at a karaoke and I have to listen to it. A fat prick from Stoke (laughs) who basically convinced someone somewhere that he was worth 35 million an album. Is that not its own form of greatness? (laughs) I don't think so, but discuss. Just on that, when I was... um... My last year at university, I had a mate who lived in, one of my housemates lived in Stoke and the three of them I didn't go went to a pub just outside Stoke and I was sat there and Robbie came in and he's, it was just when take that was starting to take off and um, his mates, or I don't know, his mates or if he was on a date, he ended up being on his own and drinking with my mates for two hours and they said, in fairness, he was a lovely chap and then one of my housemates lived in Cornwall, and at the end, after two hours when he left, my mate he went, uh, "Right then, which football team does he play for then?" <laughs> Brilliant. I just, I honestly, is it not about the front, the bullshit, the aura, as much as it is about, um, and the image, as much as it about it is about the music as well. Without, without meaning to get political, um, I'm sure you remember the wet blanket that was Ed Miliband. Naming the fact that Robbie Williams was his favourite singer and David Cameron being a pretentious wank noodle decided to crack a little joke in the the House of Commons and go, oh, I'm sure he's loving Engels instead um, in some kind of vague Marxist reference. Uh, And for that reason alone, Robbie Williams can go fuck himself. (laughs) And he wasn't the best member of Take That. He wasn't. He thought he was the best member of Take That and he left. And they were better for it. And then he came back for that album. And it, was and it was shit because it had to be all about Robbie and Robbie's sound and what Robbie wanted to do. And then he left again and everyone went, oh, thank fuck for that. I mean, I don't like any of Take That. I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, I cannot stand 
to take that. Oh, there everyone's many fingers. Many. <laughs> is there anyone I'm actually I haven't offended tonight? Clive. <laughs> Quick, slag off Diane Abbott, then you'll have completed the set. <laughs> I met Diane Abbott once. I've got I've got an anecdote there, but I'm not gonna say it. On oh, did you shag it? <laughs> it will go down in legend for history hack if you did. <laughs> Um, I, yeah, I really can't go and go down that route. Um, but anyway, I'm but you're not move. denying There's too much even for Dan the Pope. Yeah, <laughs> there's a line. Ugh. I think that's it. Anyone else on aura and stuff? Does it make a difference? It makes a difference board? at the time, but I mean, the, the, the really good ones will win through. So Freddie Mercury will be remembered in a way that Robbie Williams isn't. I mean, it's that, you know. Because well, not, uh, unless you're talking about his local kebab shop owner, yeah. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, Freddie's yes, Freddie's a great was a great performer and a great frontman and stuff. But also, he wrote an album for an opera singer, um, which he sang for her. So he also has that talent to back up the bravado and and the the showmanship. I'm not going to lie, he's, I was... he's a lot more than a showman. I was quite small when that song came out and I did run up and down pretending to be a gymnast a lot to that Barcelona song. And I still feel the urge to do it if I hear it now. Anyway, uh, while they are debating with each other or agreeing to just disagree with the uh, thing, I want to go round. Uh, I, I, Beth has Beth wants to say something. I do want to say She's something. She's had a bottle of wine, so brace yourself. I, <laughs> it's not, like, it's not, not going to be that bad. I just wanted to say... Um, how brilliant tonight has been the standard has been absolutely fantastic and i think everyone has done exceptional pitches there is not one that i could say i didn't dis didn't agree kit. with except for kit kit, can, <laughs> kit has bad kit bad kit so we now have we all know what the tiny penis of vindication is we now have what is it Lockie? the medium-sized penis of misappropriation <laughs> which you have been flashed Tonight by Lockie. And I will be forming a posse with Sam because I still haven't forgotten when he did the same thing to me last October about favourite saints. And I still haven't got him for that yet. So me and yeah. Sam. The problem is right now, if you stand against Kit, you're standing against me. So clinically, even though Kit's on the pitch, we're working together and we're kind of the same team. So Sam, you're th Sam, you're thinking about this far too much. Oh. We're against Kit, that's fine. Um, so and to Kit. Andrew Lee Weber. Yes, there we go. There we go. Um, seeing as I'm still talking, I will just continue with who I think had the best pitch tonight. I don't have the energy to stop her, frankly, at this point. <laughs> um, and I really, really enjoyed all of the pitches. Um, I learned more about Dusty Springfield than I've ever known about Dusty Springfield. So thank you, Heather. Um, but I must be true to my roots. Oh my fucking, there's a spider on the floor. Um, I must be true to my roots and stick with taylor swift because oh, for her. the love of god if i could mute you right now i would but then i'd be muting myself <laughs> uh kits um so i'm gonna tell you a little story um there was a, a baby kit once and uh kit was in high school and um kit was queer but kind of didn't really know what kit was um and i ended up listening to an album from a has-been singer, old kind of fashion singer, why are they producing new music? What's all this about? Um, and I found someone speaking to me on a level that I'd never heard before. And the album was Hours by David Bowie. 
Um, so David Bowie holds a very special place in my heart. Um, but if I'm brutally honest, the question is, who's going to be heard in 200 years, in 300 years, who's 400 years? This is about history. Um, and I think the answer is probably Beethoven. Ooh, interesting Ooh. choice. Sam? So I am very unashamedly going for the woman that who sings to my demographic, uh, uh, millennial, female, white, semi middle class, <laughs> campaign problems, knows boys are drama, Taylor fucking Swift, you have my heart, you have my Spotify downloads, you have my money every day of the week. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Baby Jesus wept. Lockie, you can't vote for yourself. Vote for someone good. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like if I wasn't going for Taylor Swift, or maybe if it wasn't going, I, I feel like Matt Bellamy from Muse should deserve a, a shout. <laughs> oh, no, right, not but... after that Olympic theme song. <laughs> they can fuck right off. <laughs> All right, okay. Oh, so... you can win, or whatever tedious shit it was. Um, <laughs> oh, it's, it's the best I've ever seen live. Anyway, um, but then I've not seen some of the others. And I, I, I said for I've said for years now, if there's one act that I could go back and see live, it's Fred at the front of Queen, really. But what I what I'd say, kind of, what I did, um, I lectured the Cold War course at my university to the second year undergrads, and about two thirds of them there had heard no Bowie. And we did work, we did our session on Cold War culture and on hearing that nobody had heard heroes. I was just like, right, okay, stop now. Got my Bluetooth speaker, click, right, shut up, everyone. You're listening to this song. You know, if 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 I've got to crowbar it in, it's for the lyric. And I remember standing by the wall. It it needed to be heard. And I think from a kind of rational historical point of view Bowie's value is greater than anyone else I've heard tonight I think actually as a kind of commentary on his time and age and prowess in his field I think he's great that said I still would rather go back and see Fred so uh, yeah, is that is that an answer? I don't know. Maybe a bit of a cop. I'm between. I'm between both. And, and, yeah. Well, I'm going to fuck it up even more. So, if I had to pick one that's been pitched tonight, I actually was most surprised by and most impressed by Dusty Springfield. But I actually think that we've there's a big omission tonight in terms of an all round artist who could write, who could sing, who could produce, and who has impacted dozens more songs than the songs of his that you have heard and you don't even know it and that's Prince mm. and he didn't get a mention mm. today and he should have done uh, Clive Okay well obviously the big unmention of the room was Jedward but we'll skip that over <laughs> for now um, <laughs> It's very difficult this lot because pretty much none of these would I put anywhere near the fourth division of musical talent, let alone the pinnacle. <laughs> the only one that gets up there anywhere near is Bowie. Yeah, oh, not Dan is no one voted for Daniel O'Donnell, Clive. Oh yeah. No. <laughs> Bowie is Charlotte. Ah, uh, it's Swifty for me. Lover. Zach. 
I expected tonight to be siding with Beth, but in the course of the discussion that we had, I was won over by uh, what Alex said. Um, and I was then won over by Kate's pitch. So I'm going to go with Freddie Mercury on basically on the basis of the strength of her argument. Uh, Heather. I'm also going to go with Freddie Mercury. Oh, please say something else in that voice just because it's brilliant. <coughs> um, okay. Well, what exactly do you want me to say? Marge, you're like, no, I don't, the I don't think that's a question you should ask. I don't yeah. so say I'm, I'm Batman, Heather. I'm Batman. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but can you uh, tell Marge something derogatory about Homer? I told you he was worthless when you started mate dating with him. I don't see why you decided to procreate. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Kate. Um, I um, have to pick Bowie 100% because he, from the ones that have been pitched, yeah, 100%, I would have chosen him myself definitely um yeah absolutely and i hate taylor swift sorry <laughs> yeah. whoop, whoop. i'm with you i don't hate her she, I just she speaks highly care. of you heather i just i don't hate sorry, her i don't okay. care i've never listened to one of her songs all the way through it just does nothing for me what what went wrong for me was that my then about five-year-old cousin sang that um we are never ever ever she sang it over and over and over and over and over until my ears bled and that just now i can't <laughs> i can't even right judges yeah. um Josh, are we going to do our own top three i think uh, yeah because we're, we're gonna we're not going to agree are we i mean it's, it's um yeah I mean, I, first? I, if you like, I mean, I just, I, I mean, I just, I, I just quickly. Two hundred years from now, we'll we'll still remember Beethoven and Bowie. I think the person I'd most like to see is Freddie Mercury. Personally, the one who, who I, you know, I'd, I'd like to put on now is Dusty Springfield. Um, but the pitch that's changed, that's actually made me want to find out more. Say the great is is Shostakovich. I now want to listen to Shostakovich. So, um, there we are. Nice! Nice! Well, one half of a victory. Yeah, I, I didn't go for Shostakovich. Um, Clive <laughs> 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 doesn't look surprised. I, I was surprised nobody went for ABBA, actually. Oh, I, was, I said that, ABBA. we were talking... I mean, I was, ABBA, oh shit. ABBA, ABBA. Fuck ABBA. ABBA. If I'm I was not, a serial killer, ABBA would be my trick. I'm not saying I thought they should have won. I was just surprised nobody went for them. That was all. Um, yeah, right, my, such low regard for us. Well, <laughs> yeah. they, they fantastic. They did all sorts of stuff at, at the Battle of Leningrad Five. Burying <laughs> <laughs> potatoes and no, was Waterloo. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, my top three, I was struggling with the third and the second, and I kept flipping them around. So I'll go with, I'm going to go with John Williams third. I'm going to go with Bowie second, but I'm going to go Dusty Springfield first. Yes. Oh, so it's basically, it's a tie between Dusty Springfield and Shostakovich. As usual. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've never seen that? them in the same room, right? We'll call it a tie between the two of you as much. Uh, Zach, what's the next topic? I haven't got a bloody clue. <laughs> oh, we've still got a wear one about worst political decision. That'll be next. And then after that, we'll record a new one, which will 
probably be as mad as this. Uh, Josh, thank you very much for being a guest judge. Do come back uh, if you can can bear it. Uh, The rest of us have a great time. We all think we're really funny. Uh, So we'll see you next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.